joining us on the Path Radio Mix online. And to get there, type in thepathradio.com. That's thepathradio.com. And enjoy free streaming music all day long. That's it. thepathradio.com. All right, now let's get to the main show, the monthly social podcast with me, your host, Guido Perino, as you go on with Guido. Welcome, everybody, to the monthly social. It's the August show, and nothing has slowed down for us this summer. I've got author Mark Berrios Ayala talking to us about allyship from his new book, Let's Get Sincere. Special music guest Aaron Rayford, Christian adult contemporary artist with a new song, plus talking to us about his cross-country adventure with his family. Lots more on that. Plus Janice Funk, she's going to talk to us about circle drumming. We're going to take a look at the Rogers communication meltdown, and the four fans are back with NHL summer hot hockey talk. All right, let's go. Now, before we get going, a quick word from one of our friends of the podcast, Johnny Prosciutto. Johnny Prosciutto, artisanal Italian homemade products. We make it like our grandfather, or as we say, no, no. Naturally cured, old-fashioned, and delicious. The best part? We deliver straight to your front door. We offer free shipping when spending over $99. Order online at johnnyprosciutto.com and stay safe. And when you use the code GOGUIDO, you're going to save $10 off your entire order. That's the code GOGUIDO on johnnyprosciutto.com. Yeah, if you have not tried Johnny Prosciutto yet, I encourage you to give them a give them a call or check out their website. They make some great uh, dried products, but they also have a really nice fresh sausage that works great on the barbecue or really nice if you're into... If you're into putting meats in your pasta sauce, uh, the sausage in the pasta sauce is just, just phenomenal. Yeah, and they're very well priced for the quality of product that you're getting as well, especially, you know, during these times that, you know, we've talked about the increase in the cost of groceries, uh, the cost of living, um, and what's happening there. Uh, And, you know, it it reminds me, actually, I I was at a farm this past uh, weekend and um farm that i've gone to on a on a fairly regular basis it's out in the open i just love the the feeling of of that um but i noticed that the base cost of a basket of anything has increased by about two dollars to two dollars and fifty cents maybe so you know you get a little basket of of beefsteak tomatoes and beefsteak is just a type of tomato but beefsteak tomatoes are these nice hefty tomatoes um, there's about five tomatoes in the basket. There's always been about five tomatoes in the basket. And this year it starts at six ninety nine, which is seven bucks for these tomatoes. I think in past years when I first started going, they went three ninety nine, four ninety nine, and, and so on until we got to, to this year's price. It was kind of the same thing. They're you know, the same size quart basket of of um, fresh peas starting at six ninety nine. A basket of zucchini, I think we're starting at, at seven ninety nine, whereas before they were like four ninety nine. So I, I just noticed, and I had to scratch my head because I always thought, well, if I'm going to the farm, I'm cutting out a whole bunch of costs by buying directly from the farm because they don't have to ship it to a middleman who distributes it to, you know, the grocery stores, et cetera. They eliminate all the shipping costs and stuff. But I, 
I noticed that that same basket at the grocery store cost less than at the farm. So I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm saving you all of that shipping, right? So shouldn't you help me out and give me a little bit of a break if I'm coming here to get it? But I guess on the flip side is you're buying it fresh. You're, you're, you're not waiting for it to go on a truck and go to the grocery store. So I don't know. You know, it, it is what it is right now. I think we have to kind of make our way through it. And there's a whole bunch of financial reasons, you know, that we've covered on, on other shows as well of what's happening and, and what might happen or what might not happen. Um, but, you know, along with this comes the weather. And in a previous show, because the weather has impacted the growing season, I noticed that in July, the pickling cucumbers had come out. And those typically don't come out till later. So I was wondering if maybe all the wet weather that we had um, contributed to that. And that's something uh, I think earlier on in maybe January or the February show, I talked about how the, the weather was going to be this summer. Um, and one of them was that we were expecting more rain, cooler temperatures. And so far, for the most part, we have seen that in, um, you know, the, the province of Ontario and, and other uh, neighboring uh, provinces as well. Um, so, hey, some of those predictions came true. So our shows are pretty good. You know, we, we do have some predictive um, elements to it, right? Um, but we've had some hot days in July. But, hey, nothing as hot as what's happening with Rogers communication, like like meltdown. They had a complete meltdown coast to coast in Canada wiped out, you know, major parts of their services, which include internet, television, um, home phones, right? And that is, it caused a large impact to, you know, emergency services and other things like that. And there's been a lot of follow-up for that company. So I am going to, I'm going to cover, um, Rogers communication, um, a little bit later on in the show, uh, with, uh, um, a piece that I did on them called the Rogers non-communication experience, uh, so looking forward to that, too. But let's kick things off on the show with author Mark Berrios Ayala as he talks to us about allyship from his book, Let's Get Sincere. I would like to welcome to the show author of the new book, Let's Get Sincere, Mark Berrios Ayala. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been enjoying the weather. It's not been too hot here. Uh, so, uh, but it's not been, you know, it's not been our typical summer. So, but uh, still, it's better than snow, right? So, yeah, well, you are a couple thousand kilometers north of where I am because I'm fairly, uh, for us, it, where I live in the Miami area, basically Miami, we never get snow. If it's cold, it's maybe like, you're lucky to see your breath if it's that's the coldest it'll ever get here. So summer here is just as brutal as always. If you ever put your hand to a light bulb and you feel the burning sensation, that's what it feels like when you go outside and you know, the sun touches your skin. I'm used to it, so not everybody is. So uh, I sometimes run in the sun, actually, though. I have noticed my I'm not running as fast as normal, not just because of the heat. Wow. You know, I, I may have told this or had this chat with another guest before, but um, there was a point in time where I almost... Uh, moved to Texas for work and um, the person the recruiter who was helping me um, out said oh we've we've got a place for you to stay and they were describing it and they said it's got a fireplace and I said 
uh, it's in Texas, right? And she says, yes. I said, why, why do I need a fireplace in Texas? And she says, well, we have some cool nights. It gets down to about 65. I said, 65, we're in shorts up here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that is winter in Miami. You see people actually wearing jeans and jackets. So I'm a little more cold tolerant, so I will go out in shorts. Um, yeah. People tell me, don't do that. And I'm like, we can do it. If people in Canada can do it, so can I. <laughs> yeah, we do it, and we do it with the snow outside, too. So, um, you know, locations and weather aside, like we're here to talk about your new book, and it's called Let's Get Sincere. Um, and it's got a focus, and I hope I'm saying this right. It's got a focus on allyship. Yes, that is correct. So okay. allies, in a nutshell, I have a one-word definition for it, but it's basically an ally is somebody that helps a disadvantaged community that is not their own. Well, I use the term resilient community. That's basically what it is, a disadvantaged community. So allyship is fo- is community-focused. Uh, yeah, but I do have an emphasis on helping a community by helping individuals because that's what any community really is at the end of the day. It's just a group of individuals. So I have a story of one person who's a college professor mentoring a young lady who's on her way to law school. So, uh, and thank you for that explanation because, you know, um, I didn't, I think others didn't quite understand it. And I know I didn't understand it either. So uh, it helps us set up a little bit more of our conversation uh, today. Um, what brought you to write a book on allyship and, and maybe, you know, um, was there a motivation uh, or a goal? Uh, is, does this, to- does this topic have some specific importance to you? Um, well, yes. Yeah. Um, part of it is personal part of it is because I just feel at the end of the day, it's a message that should be written. And at the end of the day, it's like, why not me? You know, have you ever heard the saying, you know, if not you, who, uh, that's kind of it for me. Um, I do mention this in the prelude section of my book. Um, I had an ex-girlfriend, well, a girlfriend at the time, she, we're not dating anymore, who suggested I write a book. And I was always like, yeah, whatever. I don't know if I want to do that. But after thinking about it over the couple of years, I was like, maybe it's worth a try. Now, let's fast forward to the days when the, to around 2019, actually. And I was thinking about it, um, I was like, you know, I'm working and my job, I'm at a point where my job isn't really challenging me anymore. And I'm like, well, what is missing? You want an intellectual challenge. So I was like, why not write that book that was suggested to you many years ago? But then I thought, what would I write about? And then I thought about and brainstormed about it. And then it came up with the idea of a self-help book on being an ally. Originally, it was going to be a history book on disadvantaged communities, but I realized that that was already done and I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So I decided to write it on that. And I looked around and I find a book that quite answers that question. And I, that's when it came to me. It's like, well, why don't you do it? As a personal stuff for how I am in it, I've been involved in about two African-American organizations, one in college, another one currently. And I'm obviously not, you know, as we call in the United States, black. So I'm, I'm Latino. So it's, uh, but, you know, I guess uh, politically, social politically, it's a little different. So, and I decided why not? So um, my book mostly emphasizes practical things, like little things anybody can do, because that's kind of the stuff that I mostly did and I'm doing now. It's nothing that's going to really be grand or anything like that. I doubt they'll make a movie about anything I've done, but that's <laughs> the point. Most of us won't do anything like that. And that's okay because uh, the small little things like being a mentor is just as important. 
Yeah, they do. They do matter. Um, you mentioned the preface of your book, and you know, I'm familiar with a few things that you talked about. Um, and in the preface, you talk about going to the University of Central Florida. Um, and there's a line early on page 11 that reads, I did not know anyone at UCF. I was just a humble Puerto Rican man in a big collegiate institution that was light years uh, from home. Um, and then as I'm going through that, that line stood out to me. Um, and at first, I wasn't sure why it stood out to me. But, you know, I, I read it through a couple of times. And, and I, I think I had two reasons why it stood out to me. You felt it was important to identify as a humble Puerto Rican man and that you were so far away from home. Um, what was so important about those two aspects of your life at that time that, that, they, that they come together like that? Uh, well, for the longest time, my experience as a Latino man here, especially in Florida, which has its own unique experiences, that's basically a whole other interview. Uh, <laughs> that's basically all I've known. I've lived that way. So, But when I first came to UCF from the community college I went to, it was culturally very, very, very different because I'm used to living in areas that are mixed race, so to speak, and UCF was predominantly white. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it was a bit of a culture shock for me because the culture is just very different. And I found it a little harder to click with people there than I did anywhere else. So that was it, there was, it did feel like a different world. It, it just feels so different. So. Uh, I got accustomed to it after a while, but um, at the time that I was transferring there, it was just very different. So, um, but you know, like we're humans first and foremost, and what we do best is we know how to adapt, and I eventually adapted. So, um, yeah. So it was so evident, like at that time, you just saw yourself as different because you looked around and I'm I'm different, and I I don't know how this is going to go, sort of thing. Oh, I didn't see myself as different. I knew I was different. So um, I, I knew I was. I felt it. And it wasn't really that surprising to me. So, yeah, well, yes and no. Uh, I knew it was going to be different, but uh, knowing and understanding are two very different things. I mentioned that in my book and another part. So uh, I really got to appreciate, like, yeah, this is more different than you really thought, even you thought it would be. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your personal experience and, and how it played a role, I guess, in, in who you are now? Uh, yeah, um, I had some good mentors over there. Uh, they kind of helped me, I guess, think about just develop myself professionally and also to a lesser that professional development does develop me personally. Um, I did internships there. I was involved in different student orga organizations there including an African-American one. And there's a funny story to that because um, I was, I think, in my second, first or second week, I don't remember exactly. And I remember I was in a class and the, the president at the time was standing in the beginning and asked him, you know, if anyone wants to join us for our meeting, it's at this place. And I was like, where? And he's like, it's at this location. He asked for my name. I gave it to him. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go there. There's no reason not to. And I went and I went again and I met some cool people there. And then I made it to, I believe, the treasure. Yeah, I think it was the treasure. I don't recall off the top of my head. And then uh, the rest is history. I got out of the group when um, I was about ready to graduate. And then I kind of did, I, grew, uh, I call it like an adult's version of that about three years ago, which I'm still in right now, but in South Florida. So for me, it's just a continuation of what I did in college. I had good experiences there. So I'm, and I 
had good experiences with the group I'm in now. So, so that's a thing for me. Other than that, just, I guess maybe the, I was a first generation college student. So I was just learning different things there that I would know was ever going to teach me. My, you know, my parents never went, so it's not that they're bad. It's just, this is an experience that they never been through. So they really can only tell me so much. So, um, and I'm glad for going to college. So it was a good thing. So yeah. What were their thoughts on that? Like, was that, was that a, a big thing for you guys or? What college? Yeah. Yeah, of course. They're very supportive. They always told me that I should go because uh, my dad dropped out when he was a freshman and he always regretted it. So, but your dad, so if I read that correctly, your dad was a Navy sailor? Was that? He was a, yeah, he was in the Navy. He got out of it many, many years ago and he's just kind of worked regular jobs ever since then. So, Mark, you uh, mentioned culture. a couple of uh, a couple of moments about ago, um, how do you think your upbringing in uh, the Puerto Rican community has shaped your beliefs on the importance of allyship? Uh, yeah, uh, for me, I feel like uh, there's a bit of cultural historical precedent in my community for that. Uh, I know in my book at later versions I refer to the Young Lords as a good example of that. It's basically a group, a civil rights group of the '60s, lesser known. Um, they're basically a group of people, Puerto Ricans, that want to help other Latinos in like the northeastern area where they tend to operate New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. And they did collaborate with some African-American organizations. It's just a shared history, shared struggle. So they see there was just a, no reason not to have like a shared collaboration to overcome those struggles. So I see this as like a continuation of that historical precedent. So I don't think there's anything weird or unique. It's just a continuation. There is precedent for that, as we lawyers say. There is a historical precedent for that. And this is just, in my view, a continuation of that for the modern times. That's interesting because you view it as a continuation and there might be some people who just don't have any concept or or understanding of it. They're starting at, at ground zero, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, I mean, I mean, there is a historical precedent specifically to mine, but right. for other communities, you may just not have that. But the good thing is it may not make as much of a difference for being an ally, because at the end of the day, I emphasize, I mean, I have character elements here that I can go over a little later. Um <laughs> Well, I'll go over them now. One is courage. Two is compassion. Three is loyalty. Four is honesty. Five, consistency. Six, selflessness. Seven, sacrifice. Eight, perseverance. And nine is sincerity. Uh, I would emphasize the most important was sincerity because it's about, you know, being, that's what the whole book is about, just being uh, sincere by your intentions. And I emphasize, do you have any personal connection with any type of resilient community out there? Uh, uh, and I guess it's the black community for you. It may be something else. Uh, obviously, in Canada, it might be a different can of worms there than it is in the U.S. of A. So I would suggest for those that want to be allies, start there because you're a little more sincere helping out, being an ally to a resilient community. They have a personal connection with. Maybe you have a lot of friends in that group. Maybe you happen to work with them in that group. Maybe you just happen to get along with people in that community. Those are all good reasons to be an ally. At least that's my uh, stance on it. Um, you know, if you're asking me why those things, I'll throw back, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you've heard many things of people saying, you know, I can't be racist because I have friends in this community. I say, well, I, I, I'm an ally because I have friends in that community. I guess you could say that. So um, 
that's a good way to keep ground, keep you grounded, keep you honest, keep you yeah. doing this for all the right reasons. And because you're doing it all for our, the right reasons, if you you know pick a community you have a particular close personal relationship with, these elements will come a little more naturally to you. So it's not as difficult as you think. And you can find a practical way in your job to help out people who are in those communities. So um, I cite one of a professor mentoring a little um, Dominican girl. So... Uh, who's trying to go to Harvard, who uh, is a first-gen college student and has a kid. So, I mean, that's a good example of that. And there's other more practical ones like that that you can do. I mean, you can do bigger things if you want to. But for those, for those of us uh, that might not be in the cards because we don't want to, or maybe that's just not going to happen, uh, these small things are just as good. They may not get you on TV, but uh, they still matter. Um. You've mentioned mentorship a couple of times too. How does, that's probably that's the best example I can think of, honestly. So I was going to say, how does allyship differ from professional mentorship? Um, well, ally, you can make well. Um, they're just two. They overlap. I mean, you can mentor someone of your own community just as well. So uh, that wouldn't make you necessarily acting as an ally for that reason. But um, if you're mentoring someone for the other community, for a resilient community, uh, that definitely helps because, you know, they might not have anybody in their community to give you the kind of advice that they're, they're getting from you. Some communities, they may have to look to... They may have to look to people outside of their community to get this type of advice. I mean, a lot of the mentors I had in college were white, and there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, they helped me out because I was going to get information from them I wasn't otherwise going to get anywhere else. And I'm very thankful for that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I see it as just a good mentor, but um, I don't see why not to be to make that into a bit of an ally if you have a bit of a commitment. So, again, it's they're not asking you to do anything really complicated. It's just mentoring, being there for someone, being a good friend. These are things we always do. So I don't see why that cannot be a uh, hallmark of an ally, especially yeah. if you happen to have a connection with a resilient community, and that could be really personal to you. You speak from, uh, or I perceive you to speak from a, a, a position of experience and, and genuineness when you say these things. They're they're not uh, they're not just things you're rhyming off. It seems so. They seem. Uh, like- I try not to say those things. I try to show them. So um, as my mother always said, do, be a doer, not a talker. <laughs> so you wrote it down. Listen, in in your book, you talk about allies. You talk about associates, and you talk about predators. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those and then maybe some insight on what makes the best type of ally and, and how would we know, how would we know in the community that that's what they are, that they are, that they, that they are an ally? Uh, the best ally is a consistent one, a loyal one, and most importantly, a sincere one. Usually ones that have a long, basically long-term consistent effort and is the hallmark of it. Um, just, you know, consistency is a big thing. So, uh, it, like I said, any, if you can find an ally that's had a history of a closeness with a certain resilient community, a lot of friends, a lot of professional interaction, they just tend to get along with them. Uh, in my view, that is a hallmark of someone that's a little more of a good ally because they have that long history. Can they fail you? Absolutely. Cause we're all human. We can, but someone that's never had a connection that suddenly comes and decides they want to be an ally might be a little more, I'd be a little more hesitant about because I would wonder exactly why that's not to say that they're bad people. They're not genuine, but it's a little harder to gauge that. 
So uh, just a just a, a per I, I have such just personal connections. Just think about who have you did you have a lot of friends in that community growing up? Did you just happen to get along with them? Do you interact with them for work or for school? Um, is there something about their culture that you like? Those I would say are good reasons to begin being an ally because you have that personal connection, that sincere passion for it. And then um, an associate is basically someone in the community that you work with, hand in hand, not necessarily helping, but working with. So I guess the people in the organizations that I'm part of that are like core, core excuse me, co-board members with me would be associates because they work with me. Maybe they could give you guidance on how to best help their community. So um, I guess In the book, I give them some things to think about. Predators are the hardest one because at the end of the day, a good predator can make you believe that they are either, that they are an ally. And it's really hard for me to tell, to to be able to describe to you the difference because a really good one is just going to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if a good predator might read my book and say, let me try to be like this to try and fool everybody. Really? Long-term consistent uh, effort and this is probably the best way I could say it being sincere. And it's, there's no easy way to, the, to tell the difference, to be honest with you. So there just really isn't. Um, I've, I've thought about it. I spent many nights thinking about it. It's very hard. So um, long-term consistency is the only thing I can really think of that will be able to bridge the difference. So, and even oh, then, you know, it's very hard to tell. Time, time is a measuring stick. It, time is one of the first measuring sticks. That we that we would use, and then it's just a whole bunch of other factors that you're talking about that complement that time measurement. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, yeah, I mean, for those that are just starting out, say just start small. Where people, you know, if they may think you might be one, you're starting so small that the potential damage you would allegedly do would be minimal, and then you work your way there over time. So, um. Now, in, 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 in some of this, there's a healing process. Um, can you help us understand how an ally can help in the healing process? Uh, yeah, if you've had any shared struggles with someone in a resilient community, that'd be helpful. Like maybe surviving abuse or something like that. Maybe you can kind of give them your tips on how you survived it for those in there that survived it because in some resilient communities, you know, everyone can be affected by abuse, but in some communities it's more prevalent than others. So if maybe you survive that, you could, and you feel up to it, you can share your experiences of how you triumphed over it for those that have suffered for it. And, and when it comes to shared healing, I always say never try to force it. Nobody likes unsolicited advice, so don't force it on anybody. You can maybe tell people I've been through and I'm here for you if you're interested, and you let them come to you because uh, nobody likes somebody trying to shove that down their throat. So. And I'm sure, like, again, if you're sincere, if you have that connection with that community, you have lots of personal relations with people in that community, somebody will be more likely to come to you because for the, all those reasons, they may feel you might be the person to talk to. So, and those are good ways to do it. And I've heard some people say that by helping others heal, you heal. So Mark, in, in this scenario, if, and let's, if, you know, we talked about the Latino community, right? Let's, if we use that as an example, I'm not Latino. Okay. Um, can I, can I, can my experience as an, as not being a Latino, if it's a similar experience that I would share help in the healing process, is that a possibility or is there something that would go not, you don't have enough trust. You don't have enough um, 
you don't have enough of familiarity, you don't have enough longevity, we don't know about your consistency. Would all those things come into play? Yeah, all of that could. I mean, could your experience help? Sure, if they trust you. Yeah. If they feel comfortable telling you, if they don't feel comfortable, then maybe they will look at you with some suspicion scrutiny. So that's what I've said is you just start small and work your way up. You don't come out and say, you know, I'm a victim <laughs> of abuse and I survived it. If you feel that way, uh, come to me. I wouldn't do that. Or if you're going to do that, make it more broad to like anybody. So, but I wouldn't just come out that way because that seems a little much. I think people in general might be hesitant to tell you that. So, um, uh, like I said, start small. Uh, I wouldn't like uh, force it on anybody. If uh, you know, if if people want to come to you, then you help them. So um, that's the way I would see it. So just don't force it. You can tell people that's what I do, but you don't, you know, try to proselytize. Like this is the way you overcome these problems. Now, if we read the book, if we read your book, let's get sincere. If we read that, does this take us through that path on on how we can do this? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I give you the different, um, character elements. So, and I give you little antidotes there that talk about it. Some of them are historical. Some of them are, I guess you could say fictional, just to prove a point. So, um, sure. I have one on a person named Angela Herndon who led a biracial, uh, strike. And he's one that had a, who had a, who, um, united people of different races under a common struggle because he used to be a minor. He used to say once a minor, always a minor. Now he was black back about a little over a hundred years ago. And this is just a different time, but he managed to unite white miners because at the end of the day, both of them, both white and black miners felt that they were, that their companies, their employers didn't care about them and that needed to stop. And they led a small um, <clears throat> strike a biracial one, which was a very big thing at his time. So he didn't try to emphasize so much on, he, he, he really tried to emphasize on these are common issues that affect all of us. And was there a race element? Yeah, but through uniting people through that, just through being loyal and being sincere, he got a lot of them to try and start to recognize, you know, there's issues here that you erase that's an extra factor. So, and that just further divides us. So, he ended up getting arrested for doing that, and they tried to put him to death. And at that time, that wasn't exact. That was, from a legal perspective, perfectly okay to do, and that's not okay anymore. But at that time, that was a perfectly okay thing to do. So, and that was that was his biggest hurrah there. But the thing with him is, he always saw it as just a fight and um, just for workers' rights. And through that, he very subtly helped with racial rights, too. So um, he didn't try to force this racial thing, but he always tried to unite them on something deeper that common that helped them. And naturally, they began to put that aside, too. So that's a good example of that. So he just stuck to something that was deeper and greater to himself, in this case, workers' rights. So that's a good example of that. I believe that's the uh, either loyalty or honesty chapter. I don't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about the chapters in, in, in a few minutes here. There's an entry later in the book, in chapter 15, as you cover why our communities fight with each other, um, where you talk about ignorance. Um, the line that caught my attention was, ignorance breeds fear of the unknown, of what we do not understand, and that fear breeds hate. Hate is what cements this division, making it nearly unbreakable. Um, 
again, is you know, one of these lines that I think I read a couple of times and I re- we just started to reflect and I, I'm thinking this sounds reflective of some of the social and political environment that we have today. Um, is that from a personal experience? Uh, well, I'd say everybody in the U.S. is from Brazil to me has some personal experience. Do I have that? Sure. Is it, you know, a major event in my life? I would say no. Um, have I experienced racial resentment? Sure, I have. Does as I let that stop me? No. I mean, not at all. So uh, that being said, part of it is just uh, just the world as I see it. People are unfortunately naturally afraid of what they don't understand. And that can be, you know, people tend to dislike what they don't understand or don't know. That's just a fortunate fact of life. We've had lots of historical examples of that that I'm not even going to bother covering right now because I would bore you. But the point is, <laughs> that's just uh, human behavior. So I'm not going to say it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, you punch you, you punch me, you bleed. I'm not going to say that's a good or bad thing. It's just that's what happens. So, um um, it, how that translates to resilient communities is sometimes uh, the propaganda of how one community is bad kind of bleeds into them too. They can internalize it just like like everyone else, and that can cause inter- infighting. Sometimes uh, this is especially true in politics because uh, politics is a zero sum game. But when one group wants to rise, and the the common belief is when one group rises, someone else has to fall. No one wants to be the falling one. So, but a lot of times nobody wants to share uh, the, the spoils of rising up. So those can cause conflicts. And as an ally, you can ha- see that, especially if you are of a resilient community, because an ally can be in a, a member of a resilient community too. So there's nothing actually, there's nothing in the definition that says you can't do that. In fact, I would encourage members of one resilient community to collaborate with another because, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that should be done because when we get to get one bad thing about resilient communities is we tend to be smaller than the dominant community, and that can cause a lot of – it's hard, especially in a, a republic like the United States, to gain political clout when you are a numerical minority. But when you unite with other resilient communities, you can become a much larger force, maybe possibly even a majority. So that's the reason why I would suggest that, and those can be issues. I'm all for resilient communities uniting, but I also understand there's a lot of political issues that deal with that. Sometimes it's one group hating another. Sometimes it's just when one rises up, you're going to bump heads with another. That's the politics of it, and that's just going to happen. That's how humans are. But uh, that's why I mentioned that, because at the end of the day, it's just a lack of understanding and willingness to cooperate. So. Yeah, and uh, you've given some examples, you, you know, United States, and I, when I read it, I just thought more globally with some of the different things that are going on. Oh, uh, absolutely. Like, yeah. uh, this book, can, can I, I try to write it so it can fit for people in all different countries, and I think you kind of caught, I'm glad that you said that, because it seems to me like it worked, but I use the United States for a lot of my examples, as obviously I live here, and it has, it's rich in examples for that, and, you know, the U, everyone's following the U.S. very closely nowadays, like always, so um, <laughs> I figured these American examples might be familiar to everyone else, and it would be maybe, unfortunately, a Canadian example, because I don't know anything about Canada or well, any issues like that. Well, uh, American culture, and I say American, United States of American culture bleeds into Canada because we're we're so close, right? And there's there's a lot of influence, um, you know, that bleeds over the border, uh, and maybe that's why I, I I zoned in on the the part about ignorance breeds fear, uh, because I look at I look at some of the global events that are going on, and and 
you know, you look at social media and, it's, you know, we're talking about communities today and we talk about, um, you know, communities by race. Um, but, you know, there's also these other communities that sort of form up. And I, I was trying to say, well, um, you know, if, if there's a group of people that form a community on social media, um, you know, could they fit into that predator mode? Could they fit into an allyship mode or could they, um, you know, could they breed some of that ignorance, uh, you know, and, and fear? And I find myself saying yes. And then I was trying to apply what's in your book to those scenarios. And I don't know. if uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of it, there is a fine line. So uh, yeah. it's a very fine line. And unfortunately it's very hard for me to tell you, you know, this is what we, what we call a law, a bright line test. It either is, or it isn't. There is no such thing of that is the difference between an ally and a predator. The only thing I could say is really intent and long consistent, long long term consistent effort. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done. So uh, you, unfortunately, you probably will make mistakes in trying to say who is what. So the only thing I can really say is your intent. Are you here because you want to take advantage of something? Or are you here because you want to help? That's probably the telltale thing. But because it takes some emotional intelligence to figure that out, and it's a bit subjective, we're going to have different opinions on that. And I say that in much of the book because, you know, I'm not going to pretend to have the answers to everything. So I've said that a couple of times in my book because I won't. There, if you choose to be an ally to a resident community in Canada, there's going to be certain situations there in history there that I will have no knowledge about at all. And somebody in Australia is going to have one that neither you or me know anything about. So, uh, and this book is supposed to give you, well, I guess it's like, I have a legal background. It's kind of like a legal, uh, an analysis with, with multiple factors that helps you think it through because a lot of times in law, so we don't learn about the laws where it's like it either is this or it's not because you really don't need me to help you figure that out. You need the more complicated analysis where it's not so much this is the answer, but more like it's a math problem. It's like an algebraic problem. These are the steps you do to figure out the answer. And there is room for disagreement, unfortunately. And I'm not going to say that's wrong, but that's a fact of life. You, we may both do this analysis and come with slightly different conclusions on things. And I'm here to say, well, sometimes that's okay, sometimes that's not, but one thing is for certain that's not going to change because we're humans, first and foremost, and we all have different opinions. You have to assess the situation. Um, Mark, your your book, Let's Get Sincere, has, I think, 18 chapters. Um, they cover a wide range of topics, and you've mentioned, I think, a few of them, uh, but like you've got manipulation, you've got predators, perseverance, compassion, loyalty, honesty, consistency, selflessness, sacrifice, leadership. There's lots there. Um as I read those headliners, um, you know, it's going to tip the curiosity of many people who are listening to this and go, wow, like this spans a, a large, um, a large array. Um, do you have a favorite chapter in the book? Um, and if you do, what, what makes that your favorite? I don't have any one favorite um, at this time. So maybe the one with Angela Herndon, because I just found him to be a very interesting story. So just the stuff that he did, the fact that they tried to put him in the death penalty, you know, the fact that his case went to the Supreme Court of the U.S. I mean, yeah. I guess he's my favorite, I guess, for character person I mentioned at length. Um, but I don't have a favorite chapter. I like everything for its different things. It's all important there, for its different things. So, Was there a chapter that was harder to write? Um, um, geez, that is a good question. <laughs> the manipulation chapter, that one's probably the most difficult one because it's, 
it's very it's very hard to describe that in words. I mean, we all see it in practice, but it's very hard to. And just, you know, unfortunately, a person who's very excellent at that can fool a lot of people. And it's very hard for me to tell you that. I mean, it's very hard to tell you when someone is manipulating you because a very good manipulator is very subtle and not everyone catches it. And there are a lot of predators that will do that. And there's uh, resilient communities, I will say confidently, you probably have your fair share of them doing meddling in your community and not all of them are going to agree on who those people are and that's a fact of life i'm not here like i try not to preach too much and in this situation i'm not going to tell you it's right or wrong i'll tell you there are people like that and who they are they will have disagreements with and you know i try to give you something to think about like an analysis of things to think about factors to look for to help you guide you but it's going to be a different answer everywhere so some people will say corporations are predators. Some people say no, that's not necessarily true. That depends on what camp, because even resilient communities have different camps on what liberation means to them. There's some that want to be, what I call the diversity and inclusion. They just want to be a part of the bigger institutions. Other people say those institutions need to be got rid of completely. And just having us there it doesn't mean we're any less free. It doesn't mean we're any more free, excuse me. So, um, there are those camps. Um, some of the people who read this book may belong in either one of those camps, um, and they're going to have different uh, opinions. But I try to make this very theoretical because I don't know who the reader is. They could be in Canada, they could be in America, they could be in Australia, they could be somewhere in the world. And you may have, depending on who your personal relationships are with, you may have a very different opinion on who those things are. For some people, liberation and accomplishment is being able to move up in the corporate world. For Angela Herndon, some of these corporations were their oppressor by far. No uh, if ands, or buts about it. So it depends on your situation. Who knows who's reading this? I mean, 20, 30 years from now, that might be a different answer. Yeah, good good insight, I good insight and good forecast there too, right? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I try to make it really uh, yeah. something that lasts time, but I do kind of have some things that are a little more contemporary there too. Um. So I've drilled you on on allyship a lot and in different parts about the book. Um, I, I thank you because this isn't a topic that I had ever uh, explored with our, our listeners in the audience and stuff. So, um, you know, I was intrigued by the different chapters. I, I think the listeners will also be intrigued and I want, I'm hoping they check it out. Um, there's things I want to go back and kind of reread myself. And, and I don't know if it's right or wrong that I get stuck on some of these lines and read them over and over, but you're making me think about stuff maybe that I never thought about before. Uh, and maybe, and maybe that's part of the goal too. Right. Um, but I, I want to thank you for your time. I know you've had a busy day and, and you've got a, a bunch of things going on there outside of just the book. Um, but before I let you go, is there anything that you want to um, leave us with that maybe I didn't cover that you feel is important or any other type of message? Yeah, I will say for both allies and members of the resident community, one thing I'll say both of you like together is you appreciate honesty and sincerity more than you appreciate flattery. So um, if you do have one of those people there and you want to comp, if you are an ally or interested in being one and you have a personal connection with somebody in the resident community, give them a compliment, give them a very sincere and honest one. Don't try to like um, blow smoke up their butts, so to speak. You know, uh, make sure you're honest about it and do that. And you probably, if you, I find that if you are like that, you probably won't be giving as many compliments as normal, but that's okay because yours are a lot more meaningful. Also, you can pick up my book, Let's Get Sincere, on Amazon. It's already out. Um, you can pick it up there. Um, other than that, uh, I believe that is it, unless you have something else you want to ask me. 
No, I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've taken you, I've taken you through different parts of the book and, and topics and you've given us some insights. I don't want to give it all away. Like I, I want folks to kind of check out the book and, and uh, you know, um, have their own experience with it. Uh, so Mark, thank you. Uh, this is Mark Barrios Ayala. Uh, be sincere and honest, he says. The author of the new book, Let's Get Sincere. I will have all of Mark's contact information and where you can get the book in the podcast notes. Uh, that is author Mark Barrios Ayala, who is hopefully my ally now and yours. Take care and thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. All right, let's take a music break and welcome back the White House. Here is Chris Hale with a hot new summer song called Heat. Just let that heat of the moment shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that heat of the moment shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Yeah. Living for the weekend is what it's about. We were young and free, couldn't wait to be out of the house. We had that bass in the back. So fun, I never knew the meaning. Just let that heat of the moment shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that heat of the moment shine on shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that heat of the moment shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that heat of the moment shine on shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that heat of the moment shine on through. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on me. Let it burn on you. Let it burn on you. Just let that moment shine on through let it burn on me let it burn on me let it burn on you let it burn on you that is a great summer tune from the white house chris hale it's called heat you can hear it on the pathradio.com you can always come back here and enjoy it again I will have all the contact information for the White House and Chris Hale in the podcast notes. And we thank him for giving us another tune. 
You can hear Chris Hale also on a previous podcast just a couple of months ago. Hope you can enjoy that. All right, sticking with music. Our next guest is our musical feature guest for the month of August here on the Monthly Social. And our guest's name is Aaron Rayford, and he's a Christian adult contemporary artist. And he's not here just to you know, give us a new song, which is a pretty good song. You're going to hear it at the end of our, our interview. But we're going to talk about his journey um, over the past um, couple of years. And he does something that I don't know any of us could just get up and maybe do. He gets the courage with his uh, wife and family to, I guess, get rid of most of his belongings, get a trailer, and start traveling across the country in the United States. There's more to his story. Here we go. Here's Aaron Rayford. I would like to welcome to the show Aaron Rayford. Aaron is a Christian adult contemporary artist from Fredericksburg, Virginia. We're going to hear his latest release, You Are, later in the show. But first, we're going to chat about his faith journey that saw him uproot his family and follow a sign from God. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for being here. And how are you today? Thank you for having me, man. I am excited to share with you. I just appreciate the opportunity and excited to be able to share a little bit of my story um, with whoever's listening. Yeah, and I'm excited for folks to listen. It's a pretty wild story. I don't know if I'd be as courageous, uh, but maybe you're going to tell us how how you got the courage. And I I think you will. You'll tell us. For sure. Um, What's what's the weather like, uh, generally speaking, though, before we get into the, the music and the story? I said, Fre- I got this right, right? Fred Fredericksburg, Virginia. Yep, Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we always tell people, you know, it's just an hour south of D.C. So, you know, pe- people are like, Fredericksburg, where is that? That's a good reference for them. Um, right now, it's a beautiful summer day. Um, it was in the 80s today, not too, not too humid. So we're not in that, you know, disgustingly hot uh, situation yet. Um, so you said Fredericksburg, um, south of Washington, D.C. Now, just for some history buffs, right? It's yeah. known for the Battle of Fredericksburg back in 1862 and 1863. So I, I did a little bit of research, right? Because I'm yes, good job. So is this the town you grew up in? Um, and, and what's the happening thing these days? Now, obviously it's not a, not a battle, but what's, what's the happening thing? Is this your hometown? Yeah, we're no longer at war. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's good news for everybody. Um, yeah, you know, civil war buffs, you know, come history buffs come to the town and there's tons of battlefields that you can tour, um, tons of history around, which I, I really do enjoy. Um, I grew up here like around second grade, we moved to Fredericksburg from, Northern Virginia, um, probably to get out of the busyness, um, which is sort of creeping down. Like when I first came to Fredericksburg, it's still very rural. We didn't have too much going on. The downtown spot was mostly just like antiques and furniture and weird jewelry stores. <laughs> and now that, you know, people have discovered Fredericksburg, people are like, oh, that's not too bad of a commute to get up to that rat race. And so now we're getting some of these, you know, unique restaurants, these unique um, places and experiences. And so it's becoming a little bit of a metropolis. You know, we're still kind of like right in between. So there is plenty to do, lots of great food, fun, 
we built a baseball stadium. So like they're investing into this area. And I think it'll get busier, but um, it's definitely a fun place to live, grow up and have kids. Yeah. It sounds, and it's kind of neat to watch it sort of grow and evolve, eh? Like the town, yeah. your family and then the town too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just watching the history and watching how really how fast time flies by, honestly, a reminder mm-hmm. to continue to make them, you know, make the most of every moment and make time for what matters. Is there a spot in town? Like you, you said, you know, as you watch time go by, I always think of um, there's, I think there's a Billy Joel video where he does a, a, a video where the kitchen, the kitchen always changes, right? Because mm-hmm. family, family always gets together and you're in the kitchen and the kitchen is the thing that always sort of, is there a place in town where you'd say that's the place where, you know, you've seen it change the most or some, like you mentioned downtown, where, you know, you've yeah, seen that, yeah. is, is it maybe that, is it downtown? That, you know, that has definitely changed, like businesses coming in and coming out, but, you know, like where I grew up, just, you know, on kind of a, more of a rural area, you know, whereas you drove that road at first and it was just <laughs> fields and, and woods and land, like now there's like a Walmart there, there's a Wawa, there's like all these businesses and colleges and stuff going in. And so oh. it looks way different than than back when I was in second grade coming to town for the first time. Um, so it's 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 definitely crazy. So you're in town, you've been growing up, you've been growing up there, you've been playing guitar since you were about 12 years old. Yes. How did that come about? What what drew you to play uh, you know to play music or what kind of music were you playing or inspired by when you were like 12 years old if if that's when you started, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit sooner. I mean, 12 years old, like I know I was like starting to kind of write songs. Um, really I grew up listening to, um, DC talk, um, Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, audio adrenaline. Um, like these were like the big like bands, you know, and then like Toby Mac, like when DC talk broke up, Toby Mac went solo and started doing some crazy stuff and I think DC talk is a good example for sort of where I get a little bit of my musical influence because I have a, a love for R and B music. I have a love for rap. I have a love for rock and pop. And they really were a mixture of talent um, of all of those things that kind of made me go, okay, like I can just write a song with rap in it. I could write a song with this. And I started to kind of grow from there, find other bands and, um, I got into like bands like Reliant K and started to try to be a rock, you know, play rock guitar and write rock songs and silly songs. And then um, around that age, 13, 12, 13, I joined the the youth group band and I didn't even know how to play guitar. I just was like, I'm going to do this thing. Um, and I'd go home and like practice the heck out of those songs and just try, try to like not sound horrible when it came time for like worship that night or, you know, on those nights. And, you know, that, that stretches you when you join a band or you join a group, all of a sudden it matters because you're going to be playing in front of people instead of in your bedroom. So that, that progressed my, my journey pretty fast. Yeah. And, and at such a young age now, um, is that when your journey in Christian faith music started around that time? Um, and, and, and what was it that brought you to that genre of music? Like when you're telling me, Hey, I was in R and B rap, rock, pop. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a switch, right? Like, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you become, you, I kind of joined a band. We, 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 we made a rock band. I, I still play in today. Um, but a lot of times, 
you just have an acoustic guitar and just you at home. And so, whereas waiting for other people to play with other people is sort of limiting, like as an artist, like you can always just pick up a guitar and write a really simple, like, you know, song structure um, that kind of stands alone. And I find myself doing that a lot, um, whether it's in the morning, quiet times or whatever, just whatever's on my heart, just kind of playing. And that has kind of transformed into what my solo stuff is like as Aaron Rayford, you know, I write songs um, about my relationship with my wife, my kids, the things that I've been through, the lessons that I've, that I've learned and all of it to the glory of God. Like, you know, none of it necessarily, you know, I I consider everything we do worship as Christians, but, um, but I just kind of write songs from, from my experience. And that's kind of what you get when you listen to my, my solo stuff. So it's not, um, you're not doing it, you're not doing it with a, um, an intent because you have a formula to include God. You're just, yes. it's just happening. Yeah, it's the fruit, right? It's like, if, if, that's, if that's how we spend our time, who we spend our time with, then we, we really can't help but share about it. We really can't help but sing about it, write about it. Um, and so the ongoing relationship with God has, has really uh, become a huge part of the music. So you're letting us in side, you know, the door a little bit of Aaron Rayford when you start talking about that. Um, and that's not an easy thing for people to do, right? Like you're, you're sharing a bit of yourself um, more than just when we hear you sing or, or play. Um, I came across something where you say your favorite lyrics are, you are the only one I have ever needed. You give me what I need in every season. Um, why out of all the possible lyrics that that you could have those words are your favorite what 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 do they mean to you um and what should they mean to anyone who's hearing them um from you yeah um so for me the 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 personal story is <clears throat> there's there's been times and phases in my life where i've thought um okay i'm going to pursue something um other than other than god um, whether it be intentional or not intentional, like what's in your heart, that's what you'll do. Right. So there, there has been a time, like when I was playing with a band more, um, when we were first kind of playing out, it sort of became more about like, Oh, like how many opportunities can we play? Like, where can we play? Like, okay, what's our, what's our follower count at? Like how many people have listened to this? Like, it just becomes more about us. And you realize, wait a minute, what am I, am I, am I chasing something uh, for me, am I chasing something for the Lord? And, you know, the cool thing about, uh, relationship with God is if, if your heart is to, to chase after him, he will help you, um, put a pause on things that are, that are in the way, if that's your prayer. And so for me, I took a break from, from playing in a band for a while, just to really prioritize and really be obedient to what God was saying and say, Hey, look, I need to be your first love. I need to be the thing that you're chasing. Um, and, and everything else that you, that you want, that you're, um, that's outside of me will leave you empty and dry. So, so it's sort of like keeping the first thing first. Like if our relationship with God is right and he gives us the desires of our heart when we love him and when we pursue him and it's a relationship, just like, just like with me, with my kids, like I want to give them good things. I want them to be, I want them to be fulfilled and happy and successful, but they also have to abide by certain principles you know, in the house, they gotta, they gotta be respectful. They gotta, you know, be, be lights to others, um, in order to, to reap the fruit of a fulfilled life. And Jesus said that he came to give us life abundantly. And so 
I think that lyric, you know, you are the only one I've ever needed. You give me what I need in every season um, is a reminder that life abundantly is not what I can drum up for myself. You know, more, more views, more listens, more notoriety, more money, more success. It's, it's a life that is lived in obedience to God's will for our lives, who he's called us to be. And out of that, it goes, wow, this life thing is like pretty cool. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking a step here and I'm seeing the fruit and I'm seeing the success come and I'm not even having to, to fight or, or push or pull for that because God is, is, is working and directing my steps. So that, that lyric is just like, you know, for anybody that is struggling to really find out like God's will for their life, like just pressing into him and letting him do the work is, is my heart for them. Um, just listening to that, there's a certain, you got to a certain place and I don't know that everybody can get to that place. Um, but just hearing you sort of, um, parse those things out or separate those things out and, and you're putting, you mean, you're putting your faith in, into this, into the lyrics, right? I, I think I'm hearing yeah. there's a bit of faith that's happening in these lyrics and I'm not doing this. I'm doing this for me, but I'm not forcing it. It's just, it's going to come. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So we're talking about music and we're talking about faith. Um, and I, you know, it, how are those two things intertwined for you? Because not everyone is in that place where they can relate to faith or the kind of faith that we're talking about. And, and I say this, Aaron, it, it's okay. It's not a condemnation on anybody. Uh, it's, it's not a, a, a judgment or a verdict on anybody. Yeah. Um, we all have our own path and we all have our own journey. And I always say, you know, um, and you, you brought it up a little bit in terms of the, the social media and the follows. Um, I don't compare myself to anybody else out there. I compare myself to me. Yeah. I compare myself to, to my journey and my path and, and how I'm getting to wherever it is that, that I'm being led to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a judgment on any of that. But your journey, um, it, like we're talking about faith here, your journey took a twist in 2021. Yes. Um, you, sold, you sold everything you had. And you went on the road with your family. Um, tell us about the day when you said to your wife that this is what you wanted to do. Okay, before we hear from Aaron Rayford about his RV journey with his family, let's hear from one of our friends of the podcast. Recipes at My Table is a work of family, love of food, and sharing of stories. The stories keep the memories alive and make every day a party in my kitchen. Join me for the sharing of traditional Italian recipes and so much more. Visit me at www com. Okay, let's get back to Aaron Rayford and his RV journey with his family. Like, we're talking about faith here. Your journey took a twist in 2021. Um, you, sold, you sold everything you had, and you went on the road with your family. Um, tell us about the day when you said to your wife that this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. So, so this is, so the crazy part about that is that I never even wanted to do it. Um, five, the story is five years before we took off in the RV, right. With, with our four kids and our dog, you know, and this is a 300, 300 foot, you know, 300 square feet of space compared to our, our, you know, four, 
you know, four bedroom, five bedroom home, um, major downsize. Five years before that happened, Carrie, uh, my wife had mentioned to me like, Hey, you know, wouldn't it be crazy if we, you know, just went on the road, lived, lived in an RV and visited all the States. And I said, yeah, that would be crazy. And you're crazy for even thinking about that. Like, that sounds like, how are we even going to do that? If we wanted to, there, we have work and we have, you know, kids school, and we have this. And so I had a list of things. And so fast forward, you know, as, as we do, we have conversations about, you know, things ongoing and she would bring it back up and slowly, but surely more of the reasons, um, why we should do it kind of outweighed the reasons why, why we shouldn't do it. And, you know, some of those things like life is short, the kids are a certain age. Once they get a little older, this won't be something that we can even pull off. Um, you know, just a a plethora of things. And so my prayer at that time was like, okay, let's begin to plan for this and let's have our, have our prayer be, God, if you don't want this to happen, like shut the door, like we won't do it. Like it's cool. This is before, you know, the, the C word COVID happened. Um, and so we're figuring this out and then lo and behold, um, this pandemic hits, right. And we had already started to line up our work things so that we could work remotely. Cause that's, that would be good whether or not we were in an RV. We found an RV that was available right in the price range we wanted that lined up perfectly in a high demand situation. Everyone was traveling and buying RVs during that time. So we asked these people, Hey, would you hold on to it for us again, leaving it up in God's hands? They said, sure, no problem. We'll wait for you to come down and buy it. We come down, I buy this RV and I drive away in, in, in this 36 foot RV for the first time ever driving a vehicle like that. So it's a miracle. I even made it back home. We get it back home and we start to kind of do the renovations and stuff. And still, honestly, like, are we just going to do this on the weekends to kind of test it? Or are we going to go and actually go do this trip? And as we're, we're working on it, everything shuts down in our town. Like, like the government shut down the world, right? right? We're working like businesses stop everything. And the last thing on our list to figure out how are we going to work from the road, work from home, we're like, how are we going to do this? Like we meet with our business partners every week um, in person and how are we going to do that? And the world shuts down and we learn about this really cool thing that we're using right now called (laughs) Zoom. And Zoom changed our game and we checked off the last thing on our list and that was it. God just basically shut down the world and said, yep, you guys go like rather than staying at home and not making the most of this time, go spend it together. And, and he told us two things that we were going to grow relationally and that we were going to grow spiritually. And as we traveled the 48 States and vlogged the entire thing and made memories and all that thing, we did both of those things. We learned more about our kids. We learned more about one another we grew closer to him through, through being in nature and being able to do, do, do quiet time at the grand Canyon, basically. Um, and we learned more of this trip than, than we ever have. And, um, had I said no, you know, way back when, when my wife asked, I would have missed out on what God really had intended, but sometimes we have to be, be attentive to, to how he's leading and, and, and wanting to grow us. So that was a huge adventure that, um, I'm sad is, is on, uh, you know, moving on now, it's a close now, but we're in a different season. 
but it was an incredible thing that, that God led us through. So it was actually your wife that first brought it to you. Dude, she brought it up, man. She was, she was dreaming about it, scheming about it. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm a creature of habit. We're not, we're not going, we're not going to be nomads, you know, in the U S we need to have our creature comforts and, uh, God, God had, so there was never really, you never definitively said, we're going to do this. You just said, if we're not going to do this, something will stop us from doing it, but we'll, we'll just basically, basically. And, and you know what, there's been a lot of times where, um, you know, I'm still growing in my kind of faith journey as we all are and should be, I think. Um, but I think it's more like that. I think a lot of times we are, have like analysis paralysis and we want this big booming voice to come down and be like, Aaron, don't go on the RV trip danger ahead. But like, I think it's more of just, we are in him, right? Like we, he, he's, he's in us just like he's in the father. And, and when we, take a step of faith with that in mind, like, God, I want to do your will. Um, don't let me step outside of what you have planned for me. He's going to close those doors. He's, going to, he's faithful to answer that prayer and close the doors he needs to close and open the ones um, that need to be open for you. And that's why I think we see miraculous things happen and experiences that he wants us to do. So Aaron, as you were doing that, did you leave anything behind? Yeah. Are you talking about back at home? Yeah, I mean, we sold, we sold everything pretty much out of our house that we didn't need. I mean, we kept maybe like a 10 by 10, you know, um, things that we knew, okay, this piece of furniture might go in a, you know, our, our, our new house when we come Wait, back. So you sold the every, house I sold, too? No, we, well, we kept the house because that is a long-term investment. So, which I'm, I'm pretty okay. passionate about real estate <laughs> as well. So we have someone else renting that house right now which is great. The problem was we didn't have a house to move back into. So when we got back to town, we had to get into another house. Um, so we figured all that out, but um, yeah, we sold all the stuff and decluttered and lived, you know, downsized our wardrobe, everything down into a 300 square foot RV. And um, really I realized, man, I didn't need half of that stuff. You know, there's just so many things that just compile. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question was, about those living arrangements, but you, you mentioned something. You said you blogged your, your experience. Is this a public blog or a personal blog? Yeah. So on, um, on YouTube, we, when we, when we had been leading up to it, we had kind of been starting a vlog, oh, like okay, a family okay. vlog for, you know, it's like, it's like a, uh, home videos on <laughs> steroids, you know, and something instead of my home videos, like when I was a kid and you watch me open, you know, 30 presents, you know, in a row. And it's like boring by like the fifth present. This is like edited oh, wow. with music. And so oh, hopefully my kids will like to watch it better. But, um, we created a channel called the Rayfords and that's where we documented like every episode. So I could, could I go watch it? If, it, if I, if I go to YouTube or uh, I could, yes, you could go. You could, you could go watch the whole RV. Well, maybe trip we could put the link to. in the podcast, in the podcast notes, if anybody's interested, that sounds like a cool, yeah, cool yeah. experience. And, and you said couple, you hit every single state, 48 too. states. All, the, all, all of the 40. lower 48 states. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't want to go to, uh, put it on floats right. and go to Hawaii and, uh, and Canada was closed. So we couldn't even go through during that time to, uh, Alaska. How so, we'll far, so you went to that. upper Michigan. Over the Mackinac yep. Bridge up into Upper Michigan. How far did you go? 
We went to so in Michigan. Where do we hit? We hit like the 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 upper Mackinac. peninsula area. Um, I don't remember exactly. Do you know where no. Torch Lake is? Okay, Torch Lake is where we went there, and then we all caught the, um, one of the Great Lakes on the top of Indiana. That place looks like the Caribbean, honestly. <laughs> like I was like, am I in the Caribbean or am I in Indiana? It was very strange. Um, but yeah, we, we have like tons of favorites stops. Utah was our favorite state that we saw just tons to do there. And now did you, and, how are you uh, doing this? You meet new people. Did you meet new people? Say that again. Did you, did you meet people? Did you talk to people? Did oh. you? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole community of, uh, full-time families is what they call them. Full-time families, full-time RV huh. with kids. Um, we found like a couple of people that we met and then ran into again, like in different, wow. in different regions or States. And then, uh, you know, they're, they're online, they're online family and online community. Um, but we still keep up with them and, um, a couple of like-minded, you know, people, like-minded believers, obviously family oriented family first type stuff. So, um, now while you're doing cool. this, are you playing, are you playing your songs? Are you writing? Are you, I I'm always writing. I had my guitar with me. Um, actually while we were, while we were driving, I was actually listening to the mixes for true story EP, which is the, the most recent release for me for, um, on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, all that stuff. And, and I was actually bouncing song ideas back and forth with the producer in Florida. Um, good friend of mine, uh, and saying, Hey, this sounds good. Let's tweak this or do this and getting it to a place where finally, um, I could, I could join him down there and, and finish the recording and do like the vocals and stuff like that. So, um, we, I was very proactively writing we were while working. we were on the road. Now, um, so yeah. you basically, you said you lived and you worked from the RV, you had four kids, you had your dog, your wife, um, we're living in, you know, some people during COVID just couldn't handle living together in 2000 square foot homes. And they were saying, that's it. It's yeah. over. We can't do this. Well, you know, we spent too much time together. We realized this isn't going to work. Um, you know, they found each other annoying, but you know, like I'm listening to your story. You didn't just survive. Like you guys thrived in that 300 square foot space. Um, you did, you recorded your recent album. Um, I, I people want to know, what secrets or tips do you have to have to have been able to achieve that? Because 300 square foot RV, that's a lot of folks in that small space. Yes, you're not wrong. Um, I will tell you this. We knew as soon as we set off, like one of our main prayers was like, God, give us patience. Um, I knew like just us being right in on right on top of each other. I mean, we got an RV that had a bed for everybody, two bathrooms so that the kids could have their own bathroom, all that. And um, basically we knew like, Hey, stuff's not going to just always go perfectly. And so with that attitude of, of prayer up front, we, we realized, Hey, it's about this. Like we are, we are missional minded, like just listening to what God had said, we're going to grow relationally and we're going to grow spiritually. And when you take yourself out of that equation, you know, you have less opportunity to kind of lose control or get upset because it's like, no, I'm here to grow relationally. So it's, 
So I'm not here just for me. I'm not here for just Aaron to enjoy the Grand Canyon. This is what, what does the family want to do? And so, so that was one, one thing, be prayed up. The second thing is just go with the flow, be flexible. I remember watching one of the early research videos of like how to get gas in your RV. Um, that's the most simple things, which I did hit like one of those little pylons a couple times, like trying to get close enough. Um, yeah, big learning curve on, on driving this thing. But, um, he said, Hey, before you even watch this video, you know, step number one is you're going to need some patience. (laughs) All right. I'm sitting right here and I've been here for about 20 minutes waiting for this gas pump. And there goes another guy just cut me off. Doesn't even realize I'm waiting. So I was like, Oh man, like this guy is, he's speaking truth. So, you know, there's, there's a patience aspect for stuff like that. There's also a patience aspect for going with the flow because when you're driving a 30,000 pound vehicle down the road, that has all your belongings in it, stuff breaks. You're, you, you know, we popped a tire, uh, the overhead bunk that was over the driver's seat where our daughter and um, younger son were sleeping that got stuck to where it wouldn't go back up. So we were like, okay, how are we going to fix this? Um, and, and, you know, you can do one of two things be like, Oh no, we're supposed to be at our next destination tomorrow and get stressed. Or you can go, this just is where God has us for the next at least 24 to 48 hours while we figure this out and navigate this. And so patience being prayed up, being missional, uh, mind, you know, mindset, you know, having that mindset of what God, why God has you there was integral with our success in that area. All things that people in a two thousand square foot home could could surely have uh, could surely have used during that time. So yes. listen, you you credit or praise God um, for the journey. You you credit and praise God for your music. Um, you credit and praise God for the support of your family. Um, yeah. What do you say to people who don't know what that means? I would say. Um, something that kind of pops in my head when, when thinking about that is um, God is God and I am not. And, you know, when, when I try to, I guess, assert myself for, you know, having taken credit or, or, you know, wow, I did really good at figuring out this and figuring out this. Like I, I just realized like I don't even have control of whether I wake up in the morning. Like we don't even get to take credit for how our body is just like automatically drawing mm-hmm. breath right now. And so just the, the pure fact that, that you're not in control of that um, is a testimony of how intricately God has designed and created and, and gifted us um, for his, for his purposes. And so um, everything that I achieve in, in this life, like I just feel obligated and and like it's the only thing i can do to basically give that back to him and give credit back to him um i can people achieve certain success you know without doing that um yes we've seen it but the fruit of their lives is evident and i think that um in the end like you hit the pill you hit the pillow at night and you can either ask yourself you know what is the purpose of all this you know you know what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul uh, or you can you can hit the pillow at night and say, God, thank you for what you're doing in my life and and where you're leading and guiding and continue to um, show me more about who you are and 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 help me to grow closer to to your heart and your thoughts and your mind, um, so that we don't waste 
the little bit of time that we do have on this planet. Words to reflect on um, as, as we, as we Aaron. consider that, Aaron. Um, what's, what's next for Aaron Rayford? <laughs> what's next for Aaron Rayford? Um, well, I've got this project that I put out, True Story EP, and, uh, you know, every project is kind of a crossing of the finish line and the start of a, of a, new, a new race. And so for me, um, I have a ton of songs that I'm just writing, going through, and I want to put out another project. Um, I sort of feel like a song doesn't really cross the finish line or have, have justice due until it's actually recorded and can be shared. Um, and so there's a lot of angst that comes along with that. And I actually was just speaking this evening with some of the producers that I work with and, and saying, look, I got to get it. Like, even if it's just an acoustic version, um, I got to get some of these, some of these songs out. Cause then they're out. You can listen to them. You can go, Oh, a different version of that mm-hmm. would be cool. Or, Oh, I've got another idea for another song. So, um, right now finishing the songs that, um, I'm writing, compiling for a new project and getting them out, um, you know, with our, with our, with our life, with our life journey, um, we moved out of the RV. We're in a, uh, a townhome, which is a little bit more room than the RV. So we're stepping it up in life. Uh, the kids are, the kids are back in school, which, you know, we were homeschooling. So the kids are back in school with their friends, they're doing activities and sports. And so as we came off of the road and, and, and as clearly as I heard God tell me, to go on this trip and to have uh, time to grow relationally and spiritually. As we were coming back into Fredericksburg, I remember it like so clearly probably be like a life memory. The sun was setting beautifully, like shining in. I was looking over at my wife and we just were like, kind of like taking an exhale of like, wow, we did that. And I felt like God was telling me, okay, now it's time to plug in. Um, And that has, that has been um, something to stretch and grow as we transition from lots of free time to, okay, plugging into school, plugging into church, plugging back into relationship, plugging into ministry, plugging into worship, um, you know, being a part of a church again and, and being on the worship team um, and plugging into the gifts that God's given me for music. And part of that is even, you know, even this, you know, talking with you and sharing the story. And, and um, that feels like being a good steward of what, what God's put on my heart. So, that's kind of the next season. I'm excited to see what, what he does. Very, with it. very connected and very inspiring. Uh, Aaron, um, are you, are you, um, playing around town? Like, are you doing some shows and things like that too? Or I have done a couple, um, since I've been back. Um, and you know, there's a couple of places that I could play, could play in Fredericksburg, but a lot of them are more of like gig gigging okay. type opportunities. Um, which there's nothing wrong with that for people that are wanting to make a living doing that. Um, for me, I've just felt more called to be um, putting out the song, sharing my testimony and, and being um, invited to places where I can yeah. feel free to do that. You know, um, sometimes, you know, you, you don't want to be in Buffalo wild wings, <laughs> um, you know, sharing your testimony and you got somebody just trying to eat their wings, you know, like, there's a place, there's a time and a place for that, but the establishment may not appreciate that <laughs> yeah, as much. Yeah, so, uh, just waiting, just waiting on the Lord um, for that. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, and more importantly, your gift uh, with us. Uh, and before we let you go, um, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with after I bombard you with all these questions? You know? So, 
These are uh, great questions. Um, I would say if, if you, if any of this resonates with you and you want to connect, um, I always say that friends are greater than followers. So if, if you, if you want to connect with me, I'm on, I'm on pretty much all social media platforms. Um, you can find me with Aaron Rayford. Um, and then as far as like support and supporting the ministry and kind of what God's doing right now, um, you can, you know, listen to the music on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, um, save it to your playlist, share it, share a song that touches your heart with a friend so that other people can, can hear that message too. And, um, and just stay connected. And that way we can encourage one another on our, on our journeys together. Right on Aaron folks from Fredericksburg, Virginia. This is Christian adult contemporary artist, Aaron Rayford. All of Aaron's contact information will be in the podcast notes. You can hear his music on our affiliate internet radio, thepathradio.com, where we're, we're streaming some of your tunes. We're playing your tunes. Uh, please keep listening to the podcast to hear some of his songs right here and now. Aaron, thank you for doing the, uh, this um, you know, with us. God bless, and I hope to have you back again. And thank you so much. I'll right come on. back anytime. Let's get to a song by Aaron Rayford. Here is You Are. Every situation has me contemplating how I'll ever make it. Cause I'm so undeserving, you alone are worthy, and I'm out here learning. That even when it's all bad, you're good, and if I didn't have you, I would give up everything that I could just to be with you. Season. Following your voice, don't care where it's leading You are, you are The only one I'm ever gonna put my hope in I fall, but you're there with the bombs wide open Following your lead, don't care where we're going You are, you
Giving me what I need in every season Following your voice, don't care where it's leading You are, you are The only one I'm ever gonna put my hope in I fall but you're there with thumbs wide open Following your lead, don't care where we're going You are our special musical guest for the month of August here on the monthly social. You can also hear his music on thepathradio.com. I will have all of his contact information in the podcast notes. Thank you, Aaron Rayford. With that song, you are. Moving right along. A busy show. It, it is probably one of the most packed summer shows that we've had. Um, I've got a guest from Leamington, Ontario. Her name is Janice Funk, and she's here to talk to us about a really cool topic. It's called circle drumming. All right, let's go find out more. I would like to welcome to the show Janice Funk, hospice drumming circle leader from Leamington, Ontario. Janice, a retired teacher, also directs children's musical productions and helps with the settlement of refugees to Canada. She is here with us on the monthly social to share her drumming circle experience and a sample performance from her drumming class. Janice, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I, I'm excited to explore this uh, this topic and for folks to listen in and, and learn a little bit more about it. Um, we've got a few questions for you. Um, the weather's the is the weather things are you're from Leamington. I always try to do a little bit on on where folks are from. You're from Leamington, which is close to Windsor, Ontario. It is Leamington's the most southerly town in mainland Canada. It so is it now Windsor it's, is south of Detroit, right? Windsor south of Detroit. It then, is. So we're actually uh we're actually south of Detroit. Right, which which feels weird because we think of the U.S. being south, right. but Detroit is north of us. And it's you're also you're also tomato tomato country, right? We are. Uh, we're we've always been the tomato capital of Canada, and I'm not sure if that's changing. We're now very much the uh, greenhouse capital. Right. Yeah, I, we've I heard- remember pre-pandemic driving through there. And there were there were windmills, lots of windmills, and then lots yeah. of greenhouses had started to move in pre-pandemic. Yes, and if that continues. It's becoming huge here. Well, I'm looking forward to. I haven't been there in in a few years now, so I'm looking forward to hopefully coming soon. Um, but Janice, so you're retired, but you got a lot going on for someone who's retired. It, it seems like that you're you're keeping busy and you're you're keeping busy helping others. Um, Was that always the retirement plan? Well, that's interesting. Um, (laughs) My career was in teaching in elementary school in um, Essex County here. And uh, part of that uh, assignment was to teach vocal music. Music is my background Mm-hmm. Music is my degree, university degree, etc. So that was something that I contributed 
in the classroom. Um, so you're talking about retirement. Retirement was actually really easy for me. Uh, and I think it was partially because uh, my identity was not wrapped up in being a teacher. Hmm. Uh, when people asked me what I did, I, I, I very consciously, I didn't say I'm a teacher. I said, I teach. And to hmm. me, that made a difference. So um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about teaching was uh, whenever I was teaching, I was learning. And learning and teaching seem so connected to me. Uh, so when I retired, I looked for volunteer opportunities, which involved teaching, but also learning. So um, if I could help others along the way, that's, that's right. really what I wanted to do. So I've been doing um, different things involving teaching along with other things, but um, I still teach some piano and I've taught ESL in our community. Wow. There's a lot of immigrants in our community. In fact, right now, a group of us have sponsored two Ukrainian families, um, one of which is already here. Oh, wow. And uh, starting next week, I'm going to be involved with teaching English to these people. And I'm really looking forward to it because um uh, I really think I'm going to learn a lot from them, too. Janice, why, uh, you say that there's a large immigrant community there. What, why is that? What, what draws uh, the large immigrant community to Leamington? Well, it's partially the migrant workers that are working in the greenhouses. So there's a lot of Caribbean people here. Uh, there's Jamaican people here. But even before that, uh, we've always had the Italian community, mm-hmm. we've had Portuguese community, um, we've got the Mennonite community. So it's always been a, a bit of a, mo- a melting pot. Yeah, quite. it's quite blended, quite, quite blended. Um, and it seems like, you know, in, in re- pre-retirement and then post-retirement, you're doing stuff that kind of gives back to the community, right? You're building that sense of community there, which... Um, we probably need more of that, you know, <laughs> we, we probably Definitely. need more of that. Um, Definitely. One of the things that you've gotten busy with and, and why you and I started talking was circle drumming. Um, what exactly mm-hmm. is circle drumming? And, and maybe as part of that, if you can help us understand what some of the origins of, of circle drumming are too. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that, except to say that we definitely have two models of circle drumming. One is the Indigenous people of Canada. Uh, Drumming has always been a big part of their culture. Um, I think they gather together um, and they join with each other to celebrate and to mourn. And I, I don't pretend to be... Um, have a full understanding of their culture. But my understanding is, is that part of that is to connect with each other, uh, with nature and with the great spirit and to remind each other of who they are. And I think, you know, we settlers, you and I, uh, we do that too. We find ways to get together and to connect. You know, we we sing in choirs. We go to church. Um, we have potlucks. 
We have coffee with friends. We, we do know how to do some of that. But I think what the Indigenous people uh, seem to have, they have an understanding of the power of the drum and the power of the vibration and the energy and about how important it is to join and sync our energies. You know, we're all bundles of energy, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's one of our models for sure. And the other model that I can think of is African drumming, uh, where they do the same thing. Um, our Indigenous people use frame drums, which is the big circle with a mallet. Um, African people use um, hand drums. They use djembes. They use dumbaks and other things. But again, I think what they're doing, my understanding, is that they're gathering the same way to celebrate and to mourn and to pray and to come together and unite and uh, combine their energies. It's it's interesting. Um, a great guru of uh, hand drumming in America was a Nigerian man uh, named Baba Alentunji. Uh, this is a, a wonderful man that spent a lot of time, he came from Nigeria, he came to America to educate and to introduce America to hand drumming and to the power of it. And um, I don't know if he thought America needed help in uniting, <laughs> but it was a vehicle that he was introducing us to. And, and I also found it interesting that when he uh, did his workshops, he, he taught people rhythms, but he didn't call them rhythms. He called them songs. And I thought, gee, that's weird for us here. We think of songs as having melody, you know, something that we can hum, hum to, sing to, uh, something that's, you know, um, so it was, it was a, it was kind of a, a leap for um, the Western culture to, to think of drums as songs. I think um, the circle drumming that I do, I would probably say, is modeled after the African drumming. You're... You very much uh, seem to be staying true to what you said when we first started talking, which is in order to teach, you learn. Uh, because you certainly have, um, you know, an extensive understanding of, of some of the roots of, of what it is that you're doing with circle drumming. And um, what comes across is, is a certain level of respect that you have for for uh, circle drumming and and the folks that um, have brought that to us. Now, for yourself, I understand that this is something that you were first introduced, I think, in in sometime in the 1990s. Um, how did that happen? How were you introduced to it? And and once you were introduced to it, we know what you do today. But what was the path? Where did it kind of take you as as that happened? Okay, uh, it's really funny looking back. And I think maybe we all have, we all can do that at times when just a simple conversation with someone uh, ends up shifting our life or shifting our career. And that's exactly what happened in my case. Uh, My husband and I were just meeting with um, a long, 
a friend we hadn't seen in a long time that now lives in Guelph. And he was just telling us about stuff he was doing. And then he mentioned that one of the things that he was doing, he was getting up at four in the morning and meeting with his friends to drum in a cave. And I'm not sure what my reaction was. It was just like, what? What's that all about? Probably my and, reaction right now. What? Cave <laughs> at 4 a.m.? Why, why, why would anybody do that? And what is this all about? So I think he sensed my intrigue. And he said, well, he said, if you really want to learn about this, he said, you need to go to this workshop that's coming up in the Toronto area, sponsored by Soul Drums in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And it is a weekend drumming retreat. And the reason why you should go to this one, Janice, is because Baba Alentunji is going to be there. At that time, I didn't know who Baba Alentunji was, and I just thought, whatever. But I did listen to him, and I, I actually registered for it, and I went there for the weekend, and I was hooked. Hmm. By the end of the weekend, everything, I, rhythm, I was just hearing rhythm everywhere. And it became part of me. I remember driving home in the rain and the windshield wipers. Really? And meanwhile, I, I realized on the steering wheel, I'm going. You know, I just, and I noticed, started noticing rhythm everywhere. So it really grabbed me. So when I got back to school, I mentioned earlier that I was a vocal music teacher. And I was finding that, you know, grade six, seven, and eights, you know, they were, they were too cool to sing. I still don't understand that, why you, anybody could be too cool to sing. But, you know, it's part of the age, I guess. They just, mm -hmm. I don't know. So I thought, you know what? What would they do with drums? So I talked to my principal and uh, did my sales job on it and uh, talked her into it. We fundraised for drums. Wow. And... Uh, we began a drumming program. We actually pioneered drumming in Essex County schools. Since then, other schools have taken it up, but um, it, was a, it was a pioneer project. And we had so much fun. Uh, kids just loved it. Um, we actually took it to a performance level. Uh, so we, we got performances. We really tried to look for excellence. And we performed at assemblies. We performed at community events. We performed on floats. Uh, we even performed at a wedding. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, so that's kind of how I started, working with kids. And um, I know that I loved it just as much as the kids. And, and later I went to um, more workshops, and I learned how to lead drumming circles. Um, so that's kind of the, back, the background. Janice, would you say that that session you went to in Toronto, was that the transformation moment? Was that, did you have like a transformation that happened oh, at that event? Oh, that yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it, and it happened quickly. It happened quickly. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so fun. 
This is awesome. Did you go there a little bit skeptical or did you go open-minded? I did. I didn't even have my own drum. Mm. I mean, I went just like, whoa, let's just check out what what this is all about. And I really had had no experience with it before. And I, uh, I, it, right away I connected with it. So, you know, 20, 20, 30 years later, you're, you're now still drumming from that, you know, you have that transformative moment in terms of circle drumming. You have all these experiences, you start teaching other people, but now you primarily lead circle drumming at your local hospice. Why the, why, why the hospice and, and who's part of this group that you lead? And I guess, can anyone come and join this group? Is there criteria? Mm. Well, it just sort of came to me. Um, another serendipitous kind of thing. I was retired and um, just open to any way that I could volunteer and, and um, help people. And I got a call from hospice, our local hospice. And they told me that they had just built a an additional building adjacent to the uh, care facility. And they were calling it the wellness center and they were looking for wellness programs. Uh, not, not for the patients necessarily, but for uh, people in the community, people, the volunteers, hospice is all run by volunteers, uh, something for them to go to, uh, to reduce stress, for instance, and uh, people, other people in the community, people that are disabled, they were thinking of, you know, people that are immobile, people that are blind, um, they can still drum. So they were looking for an activity that uh, might help a lot of people. So I thought, and what they wanted to do was uh, actually put it on their schedule they send out schedules of, you know, Tuesday at one o'clock. Um, we decided to call it heartbeat drumming. Uh, that would be advertised and people could sign up. And uh, I thought about it and I thought, geez, I, you know what? I, I don't know how that would look. What, I'm supposed to show up at one o'clock and then whoever comes... Uh, we're going to drum or what if nobody comes or what if just one person comes mm-hmm. or what if, what if um, two people come? Uh, so I convinced them that I would be really happy to do this, but what I really thought might be beneficial would be to have a core group, a core group that comes every Tuesday at one o'clock and it would be a group that others could join. In other words, they would have, something to join something that's already right. happening so that's what we did um just so I, you, you built a band you're, you're building a you're building a band a bit right you're the band leader <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay yeah. all right yeah okay. so basically our group is uh you know i gathered friends and people who i thought might be willing to do this and so there's about a dozen of us in this, I, we call it the core group, uh, because we come all the time. Uh, they're mostly retired. I mean, it's Tuesday at one o'clock, you know, so it doesn't fit a working person's schedule usually. Um, 
But so we could I, I join? Like if I if I live there and I wanted to come and I could, it's open to me I, as well. Absolutely, oh it's an open group. It's a totally open group. In fact, next time you come to Leamington, why don't you why don't you come on a Tuesday, and you can come just for the day, just to just to see what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Jen, people, people. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, people, even in our core group, there have been people that have uh, joined the group and become part of the core group. There are some people that have left because of scheduling or whatever reasons. Right. Um, so people, uh, one of our, one of our members uh, passed away, actually. Oh. So, there's, um, uh, you know, there are a few changes, but generally we've got the core group and it's very clear that it's an open group. It's still advertised as heartbeat drumming and people, uh, people come maybe for one session or they come for a couple or they come for a while. And, you know, so whatever, little- whatever the comfort is, it seems now you may or may not know the answer to this, but is this something that, do you know if this, like, are there these groups in other places in Ontario or is this just, you know, uh, I, I mean, we I, know we know what you're doing in Leamington, but is there a network of this stuff going on somewhere that, that you know of? Or uh, I believe there is in Windsor. I believe okay. they also provide um, or offer wellness activities, wellness um, opportunities. Yeah, but I'm not can't speak for the rest of uh, the Ontario, for instance. Um, well, folks might have enough information that they can kind of look it up if they if they hear that this and, and they're interested in it. Um, now, as people come and people go, you mentioned earlier a couple of different types of drums. Are there special drums that you would use to do this? And if if members, if you know, if somebody wants to come, do they have to go buy their own drum? And, and how much are these things? Like, uh, you, do you have an idea of the cost of a drum? drum drums are are pretty expensive. Um, uh, we started out with, um, when I agreed to do this, uh, we bought um, about a dozen drums. And um, we bought aluminum drums with plastic heads. Uh, really, they're very good for beginning drummers. Um, they're very durable. Uh, and those are the ones that we started with. During we've been meeting now for a couple of years, and uh, there is enough, quite a few people in our group now who have said, "You know what? I'm going to go buy a real drum." Hmm. In other words, a wooden drum with a an animal skin. Oh, okay, all right. Head, yeah. So, um, and the reason why why they want those is because they hear mine and they hear uh, a few others that have them and you, and the resonance is uh, amazing. A good drum has an amazing resonance that the aluminum ones don't quite have. So um, I don't know whether you're familiar at all with a hand drum, but a hand drum has uh, two basic sounds. It has more than two, but two basic sounds. And the one is the middle, the middle of the head. And it's the bass, the mm-hmm. bass. You've got a really low sound. And if you've got a good drum, it really resonates. And the around the rim, you get high sounds. So part of uh, learning rhythms is combining those two sounds. So 
you know, it makes it more interesting. Like if you have a dun 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 dun, dun that's a rhythm. But if you play it on a hand drum using both sounds, it sounds more like, you know, so it's it's a way of making rhythms um, more interesting. So we have a combination right now. Uh, We there's aluminum drums happening. There's uh, the wooden drums. The wooden djembes are happening. And actually, uh, the combination of those different types of drums make it very rich. It's, it's very nice. And how much do, how much do these drums cost a range? Um, I think you can buy like these aluminum drums for, I don't know. I think we bought them for around a hundred each, but I looked them up recently and now they're two fifty. So honestly, I don't know, but, but a good djembe, uh, Oh man, I don't know. Three, $400. Wow. Okay. So, So people, once they've done that, they're, they're invested, like they're invested in, yeah. in, in doing this. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Um, now we've danced around this other part a little bit. You, you've sort of alluded to it, but folks listening might also be wondering if there's any uh, health or mental health benefits associated with circle drumming. Um, and what are some of the benefits of, of taking this up, Janice? Well, I think there's a lot of benefits. Uh, Physically, for the brain, I think it's really good. Uh, Drumming involves using both hands in different ways. So you've got to have, you've got to differentiate from your right and your left. Sometimes your right's going into the middle. Sometimes it's on the edge. Sometimes your left is on the edge, and then it goes to the middle. So it's actually something which doesn't necessarily come naturally. So I always talk about uh, uh, creating new brain pathways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all do things our whole life over and over again. We have our routines. You know, I have my coffee first thing in the morning, (laughs) every morning. I, you know, we all, we all take the same road to work every day. We have these, I call those ruts. They're not always bad, but they're ruts. You know, we do them over and over and over and over again. And uh, when you're learning something new, you don't have a you don't have a pathway. You have to create a pathway, and it takes bravery to do that. And I kudos to this core group, most of whom had never drummed before, that they came out. And we're willing to try something new, even though they had no pathway for this. It was brand new. And um, uh, your sister's part of it. And she's a wonderful part of the group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love my group. They're, they're very brave people to try something like this. And um, I think when we learn to do that, I think there's some balancing of the body and brain that's happening. Uh, well, certainly it sounds like, it sounds like some coordination, coordination benefits in terms of, of, you know, uh, continuing that from a, from a health perspective. And as you're talking about paths and, and, you know, the brain benefits, right. Um, being able to, to evolve that and, and keep up and, and sort of develop those new paths as you're, as you're doing it. Um, yeah. it must also, it must also, you know, uh, purport some sort of self-confidence, right? I mean, as, as you're learning this new skill, 
you must mm-hmm. feel better about yourself. And and I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, I I tend to be a bit of a music hobbyist, and I'm you know somewhat musically inclined. I might be intimidated coming to the to the circle drum though because <laughs> you have these different you know the different knowledge. So are folks intimidated a little bit when they come, or is you know is it? Yeah, of course, of is, course. Is there a path to fit in as you're learning this stuff? Um, because part of that is mental health, right? You want to have that self-confidence. You want to build that. And especially during this pandemic time, what better time to build your self-confidence in, in something mm-hmm. like that, right? Um, absolutely. And of course, it's intimidating. And that's the whole purpose. You know, try something new. It's mm-hmm. like learning a new language. I'm trying to learn Spanish right now. And oh, my goodness, it's it's difficult as you grow older, you know, kids, kids, just like kids pick up drumming so quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's our ruts are deeper and, and we, uh, you know, it's intimidating. So absolutely. That's why I'm calling this group very brave. And I think, uh, we do, there are ways of joining our circle. If you were to come and join our circle, there would be ways where you would not be intimidated. You would be, uh, you know, you would, you would find just a simple, a simple bong, bong. You right. would join, you would join in at your level and it's, it's all good, you know, so. Has, has anyone ever said to you that um, after doing this, they felt less stress? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, people, uh, well, people say also that, um, the drumming, they come to drumming because it, it, uh, it, it, they forget about their troubles. And that, that goes with another part that I was going to say, it really takes concentration and focus. Right. So, uh, when you're really focused on something other than your problems, you know, your problems have to wait, you know, you get a respite from, from all that. So, and, um, Renata said the other day, she said, oh, you know, I just feel so rejuvenated after, for the whole day after I've been to drumming class. So there's, you know, there's those kinds of things, but back to the focusing, um, yeah, we learn, we learn rhythms and you have to know whether you're using your right or your left. Um, I try and teach the most efficient way to play a rhythm so that means left is a, I got to be at a certain place and right has to be at a certain place. So it takes a lot of focus. And what we do is uh, we learn rhythms and we try and get that. We try and, you know, begin a new brain pathway and we do it over and over and over again. And, you know, and then we learn another rhythm and we do the same thing. And we learn that one and, you know, yeah, we're starting to get comfortable with this one. And then we do another one. And, the fun part after that is um, putting the rhythms together. Hmm. And I call those, that's called polyrhythms, several rhythms together. And that really takes focus because you're playing, you know, part of the group is playing one rhythm. Another part is playing another rhythm. There's five rhythms going on here. And so you are focusing on, Oh my gosh, I got to play my rhythm. And I can't watch other people because they're playing other rhythms. So it's, it's a real exercise in focus. And I think, um, 
I think that's uh, that's really good for us. Everybody, you're, you're jamming. You're jamming. Like I said, you're a band. Yeah. You're a band. So I, it sounds like, look, it, we, we, we reduce stress. We boost confidence. Um, yeah. There seems to be a sense of, of you know, um, relaxing and connecting with others while you're doing this. Yeah. Um, you're helping increase concentration and focus. Um, there's a physical element to this because, you know, you're, you're moving, you're moving, um, you're changing the way that, you know, you use your brain by, you know, left and right patterns and, and people are feeling empowered and happy when they're participating. So there seems to be a list of, of these mental and and other health benefits to this simple. Yes. And and I'm really, yeah, I'm really happy that you're segueing here into the mental health because uh wow mental health is so important uh i always say that we all have mental health problems Mm. some are just more debilitating than others because you know the world is chaotic (laughs) and uh you know we've just been through two years of a pandemic and there's a lot of stress going on and um, it's really important. One of the things that I want to say about um, the mental health, and I'm going to put it as almost number one here. You've just mentioned some great ones, but I'm going to say, for me, <laughs> the number one is fun. Mm. It is just fun. We're smiling and we're laughing. Oh yeah, we're focusing too, but we are having fun. And you know that when you have fun, your body, your body changes too. Like you say, you relax, Yeah. Uh, you, you lighten up, you, um, I think mental health affects our physical health. So if we have good mental health, um, I really think it translates into physical health as well. And, and maybe I can tell you a story too. Um, I mentioned that we have a lot of greenhouses and a lot of migrant workers here. Uh, my brother, Fred, lives on a, uh, a nice uh, country estate. And across the road is a large greenhouse operation. And Fred has, um, over the years, has um, made a point of getting to know some of these migrant workers. And they're from Central America, um, Mexico, uh, Jamaica. And um, so once a year, he opens up his property uh, for a migrant worker party. (laughs) And so, you know, a hundred of them come over and some of us go over, we all uh, meet them and we have, we eat together and I bring drums. So I gather up as many drums as I can find and we start drumming. They start drumming. A lot of them had never drummed before and they're kind of laughing and whatever. But, uh, oh my gosh, you know, we start out with a basic beat and before you know it, some of them are adding some things. And truthfully, I don't know really what they got out of it. But I do know that at the end of the evening, um, they say this is the most fun we've had the whole yeah, time we've been here. It's fun. <laughs> it's just fun. That's right on. You know? so, yeah, and that's important, uh, right? Like that is important, right? If you're if everybody's having fun and enjoying it, 
all of those other things kind of happen maybe, you know, as, as the added benefit too, right? So I, th- I think fun is the beginning of so many things. And, and yeah. part of my retirement is, is like I say, I am, I'm looking for volunteer opportunities that, where I can learn, but I'm also looking for things that I think is fun. So you know, Jen, I, want to, I want to be happy. We we're taught, we, you know, you've talked about the group, the, the band, you've talked about the group, the core uh, quite a bit. We're going to listen to a sample of your um, group's collaboration after we've finished our chat here. Um, and, and we're almost there, but I wanted to ask you um, when we listen to that, can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to listen to? Can you tell us a little bit about the sample or, or uh, give us some yeah. insights on it so we can keep that in mind? Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm going to remind everybody, this is not about excellence at, in this group. It's about participation. So, you know, it's not perfect. Really, it's a sample of, of what we do at a Tuesday class. And um, it's not about excellence, although... I have to say, we did uh, take it up a notch last Tuesday, and we <laughs> we decided for our last class, because we do take a summer break, uh-huh. um, one of the girls in the group has a beautiful sailboat in Leamington Marina, and she says, well, why don't we drum at the marina? So we did some extra practicing, and we took it down there, and we played for, you know, people sitting around in the park and the people on the boats, et cetera. We had a wonderful time, you know, went back to her boat for refreshments afterwards, watched the sunset. And the cool thing was it, uh, it was uh, the summer solstice, which oh, right, was right. really cool. And I believe it was also the first day of Indigenous Week, it if was. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And plus, we were celebrating, you know, just the connection that we've developed yeah. among ourselves uh, before we leave. So that was an aside. But what you're about to hear is just a class. And you will, if you listen carefully, it starts with a call and response. And then you'll hear us playing um, five different rhythms, uh, one at a time. We'll play one rhythm for a few times, and then we'll play another rhythm a few times. I think maybe there's five there. And then uh, you'll notice how we layer them. Then we start layering the rhythms, the polyrhythms that I talked about. And um, at the end, we um, all join together to uh, uh, play one of our favorite rhythms, which we've called Moonlight Heron. Okay. Does the whole does the whole performance have a name? Like, does the song like I don't want to call it a song, but does it is it so? It's just just a sample, a moonlight sample. We're going for a moonlight sample. Yeah, it's just a sample. Okay, Janice, um, this chat's been super informative um, as we've been talking about circle drumming. I've peppered you with questions and and uh, you know uh, things that you could tell us about it. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave us with before we let you go and then go listen to the sample? I would really like to put um, uh, an emphasis on mental health. Please find things that help um, improve your mental health. We, No one's going to do that for you. Uh, the world is chaotic and they're asking us to be chaotic as well so if we don't do if we don't have tools to um, maintain our mental health 
uh, we're done. So I, I'm just leaving the audience with um, some encouraging words. Please find something. And, and you are. People are walking. People are finding, um, you know, spending time in nature, um, meditating, all really good things. Um, another one is hand drumming. And um, I would uh, encourage people, if, if that appeals to you as a tool, then check out your neighborhood. See if there's a drumming circle that you could join. Uh, and if there isn't, um, start your own. But, and if you, do, if you do do that, um, I promise you, you will feel more grounded. You will feel more energized. Um, you will feel more connected and maybe just maybe you'll have the most fun you've had in a long time. So whatever your highs and lows are, that is a call and response from Janice Funk, circle drumming leader from Leamington, Ontario, banging a drum for our mental, social, and physical health, and encouraging us to find the rhythm within ourselves. Janice, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, take care. Take care. All right, I enjoyed that, and I hope you did too. Now, here's a sample that uh, Janice Funk and her Leamington Circle Drumming Group have provided for us. I hope you enjoy it.
in. And that was uh, quite soothing, I thought, to listen to. Hopefully uh, you felt that way too. So hopefully we'll hear again from Janice. So thanks again, Janice. All right, um, we've come to the part of the show where I usually um, read you something, uh, an essay, a story. Um, and uh, today's um, session is going to be on the recent events that happened with Rogers Communication, with their outage, if you will, Canada-wide, coast-to-coast outage. Before we do that, let's hear from one of our friends of the podcast, Chasers Fresh Juice. Hi, I'm Richard Chase, introducing Chasers Fresh Juice, a local business in Toronto. We've been in business for over 20 years, initially supporting our local Toronto area and now servicing all of Canada. Chasers provides fresh organic juices, ingredients, including citrus zests, dehydrated garnishes, and fresh citrus peels to enhance any cocktail or recipe you can think of. We have successfully supplied restaurants, distilleries, crop breweries, and bakeries across the country. Reach out to orders at chasersjuice.com for any questions you may have. We are a customized fresh juice company, and I'm sure we can help you. Thank you. Chaser's Juice is one of the best juices I've ever tasted. If you get a chance to reach out to Richard, or there's several restaurants in the greater Toronto area that uh, serve his product as well. So check that out. All right. Here is the piece that I had written on the Rogers non-communication experience. Sometime in the early morning hours on July 8th, 2022, Rogers Communication had a massive system failure that caused service outages to television, internet, home monitoring, cellular, and home phone services across Canada. There was a time when the failure of a telecom company didn't have such widespread impact beyond discretionary social media indulgences. This outage took down selective commerce, impacted emergency services, delayed medical appointments, derailed meetings, and wreaked havoc on all sorts of services downstream. It also frustrated a lot of home customers. The outage continued in some locations beyond three days. Where Rogers eventually communicated that it had been restored, it performed intermittently at best. Rogers Telecommunication Services aren't the only failure. Rogers failed their customers in communication, transparency, and credibility. This incident put a spotlight on telecom mergers, especially the pending Rogers-Shaw deal that maybe didn't matter to as many people before as it does now. A telecom company that fails at communications needs some serious reconciliation. Tapping into Twitter to get Rogers updates is confusing on the best of days. They have multiple accounts like at Rogers, at Rogers Helps, at Rogers News, and so on. It's not clear which will provide an update. While most of their own communication equipment was essentially broken, they did find a way to send out a few tweets. Still, customers felt left out of the loop on what had gone wrong or when service would be restored as the frequency of updates were sparse. Customers generally have a greater tolerance for service disruption when they are engaged on three fundamental principles of transparency. One, what has gone wrong? Two, when service might be restored? And three, receiving timely updates that either confirm service restoration or provide information on the outage extension. Rogers failed on all three transparency fundamentals of what? 
when, and timely communication as they embraced a seemingly unready recovery strategy in a technology war room that primarily looked inward. A look at one of the Twitter accounts reveals just how out of touch the communications were over the span of 48 hours. The at Rogers Helps account first acknowledged a service disruption at 8.54 a.m. on July 8th. According to some Canada-wide customers, it had already been several hours since outages had begun to occur. At 11.26 a.m. on the same day, they confirmed a network outage without much detail while offering a vague acknowledgement of empathy for consumers and promising some sort of compensation. At 12.54 p.m., they advised any Rogers customers who might have a pre-booked appointment that it would be rescheduled. There was no update on the outage. The next tweet came at 9.52 p.m., over 10 hours since their network outage acknowledgement. While it offered a hint of recovery and compensation, it still lacked enough detail and time estimates that would satisfy most customers, especially since widespread recovery had not yet been achieved. At 10.37 p.m., they retweeted a tweet from at Rogers News, who had a tweet from Rogers President and CEO Tony Staffieri. That tweet suggested that most customers were starting to see services restored, but online activity from customers who were finding brief alternate feedback channels, likely using other vendor services, suggested otherwise. The disconnect between Rogers' messaging and the customer experience only seemed to fuel more customer anger and mistrust. On July 9th, at 7.01 a.m., almost 24 hours after the initial service disruption, they doubled down on their message from the prior evening that the vast majority of customers were seeing service restoration. Again, this fueled customer anger as many didn't see themselves in that vast majority as service disruption continued. At 4.19 p.m., they sent a tweet about a possible compensation scam, telling customers they would be compensated directly without any need to fill out forms. On July 10th, Rogers was silent most of the day until 4.57 p.m., almost 24 hours after their last message, which provided zero feedback on restoration efforts, which was almost 36 hours prior. The message doesn't quite say that things are back to normal yet either. The lack of communication and transparency contribute to a diminished credibility of Rogers' communication. The fact they couldn't find a means to communicate with any type of regular frequency, sending customers searching for answers, demonstrated a disregard for the value they have for consumers. While the president and CEO sent an early apology promising proactive compensation, he failed to connect with the consumers on communication and transparency. The compensation has become a lame duck token that most seem to be scoffing at because the monetary face value of the service doesn't replace the business, health, or other value consumers lost in their totality. Rogers has major work to do in repairing their credibility, and it comes at a time when their pending deal to take over Shaw Communications must now be questioned. An immediate lesson learned from the Rogers communication outage is that any consumer who used Rogers as their end-to-end -end service provider was down and out. The fear is that the telecom companies in Canada are forming monopolies. 
Those monopolies may not have a reason for extra cost and redundancy or any sense of urgency in recovery, regardless the cost of credibility. If Rogers had already absorbed Shaw Communications, then all those customers would have potentially been impacted as well. Less competition can also translate to higher costs for consumers. If you got angry enough to check out the Bell Canada packages during the Rogers outage, you would have realized that there aren't any cost savings to be had if you switch. While many customers were upset at the loss of internet because it disrupted their Netflix, Amazon Prime, or other streaming services, the outage had greater consequence than ever before. Businesses lost revenue and people lost access to their finances. Emergency health services were impacted and safety remains a concern. Customer outrage was more than a Spotify or Apple Music void. In some cases, it was the ability to communicate with the elderly, their children, or other important moments. Perhaps it is time to regulate relationships telecom companies have with each other to ensure service availability in the event of any outages by using each other's networks. That would be something that should be part of any future merger or other rules imposed on these near-Canadian oligarchs. This is an opinion article by me, Guido Prino, of the Monthly Social Podcast. So, for a lot of people, the Rogers outage saga continues. I, I happen to be in, in that boat um, we've had intermittent issues since the uh, great outage occurred. And, you know, as I, as we call in for Roger's support to say, Hey, you know, we're still having these issues. It's just interesting because the, the person on the other end of the phone, they just, they go through a script. Did you, did you plug in your, you know, is your modem plugged into the same thing or unplug your modem, restart your modem? It's really you. It's not us. There's something going on at your house. But, you know, we've had our own experiences where um, I know it's not just our home. There's something greater going on in the area because our, our, our neighbors are having the same issues and outages at the very same time. Um, but there's frustration. There, there's a lot of frustration. A, a lot of folks have engaged me uh, on the article which I had posted on uh, Twitter. When you can find me on Twitter, it's uh, Go On With Guido. Um, and you're welcome to follow me uh, there as well. Uh, but uh, someone uh, posts a, a message to uh, to the article and said, I had a similar experience where the internet would be out about three times an hour for two weeks. Um, you know, it was fixed after I saw crews working on it uh, and then uh, broke the same way a week later, taking another week for that to get fixed. So, um, you know, folks are having these similar experiences. Somebody else says, my favorite is being asked to reset the modem. How many times am I supposed to do that? And, and, you know, we know when there's these neighborhood issues that resetting, you know, our own modems aren't going to do anything um, different for us, that they need to, uh, you know, take a different approach to resolution. Um, somebody says, uh, you know, in response to those, precisely why I dumped Rogers 10 years ago. I, I guess my point here is that folks are frustrated with Rogers communication, but like the article says, there's, there's an element of communication and transparency and understanding. And, and if people were given that, then if they experience those positive touch points with Rogers communication in a way where they're, they're not suspicious of, of the answers that they're getting, uh, where they see some sort of result, then the experience starts to change. Maybe the tolerance starts to change. But I do know this, is that 
very much the focus here is that it's not just about the entertainment value that we have with internet service providers anymore, but there's a lot of other folks who reached out to me to talk about how their uh, elderly parents were impacted, how not having those uh, medical um, phone um, capabilities were available, how they had to go to a location to get their elderly parents just in case something had happened because they no longer had the means to communicate because now the home phones are tied to uh, tied to the ISPs as well. And if your internet goes out, your home phone can go out. So there's a much larger issue at hand when it comes to Rogers. Uh, our saga is not over. Maybe I'll give you an update in the in the next podcast session. We've had um, technicians booked to come see us and they didn't show up because uh, Rogers felt that um, the issue had been resolved in the neighborhood, but they didn't communicate to us that they didn't show up. And so we still have uh, technicians possibly coming to resolve something in the neighborhood, possibly not. We're not sure. Anyways, uh, enough ranting about Rogers communication. Hopefully you're still able to download this uh, awesome show and listening to it and enjoying it. I'll give you an update a little bit later. Now let's get to our next session, which is all about sports. So typically in this segment, you would hear either one or two segments from our most recent It's Not The Ref.com affiliate podcast, where the four fans talk sports. And you are going to hear an abbreviated version of our last episode on It's Not The Ref.com. And the reason for that is because it went quite long because there was some time gap between our episodes. So it's too long to fit in to this episode of The Monthly Social. Um, so it's an abbreviated version, but you are going to get an exclusive. And the exclusive is that you're going to get a piece of our conversation after we went off the air. And it gets quite animated. Maybe I get quite animated. We had just finished talking about the dynasties in the NHL and whether Tampa Bay was a dynasty. And we had started to get back into the conversation about Nikita Kucherov. So enjoy the abbreviated segment and then enjoy... Just in this show, the exclusive of It's Not The Ref.com here for you today on The Monthly Social. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the July 21st edition of It's Not The Ref, the four fans talk sports. We've got a lot of names uh, here. I've got Clark in Detroit. I've got Roland back in Windsor. He was joining us from Hawaii. Who says that, that we don't go to great lengths for you here on It's Not The Ref? And uh, we got Brian, who's normally from Barry, but he's out on he's out on the lake, right, Brian? Up in Smoke Lake in Algonquin Park. Smoke Lake. We are all world. That's all I gotta say. All world. <laughs> all world. <laughs> hey, your loon, your loon is still here waiting for you to come up and take his picture. <laughs> oh man, don't tell that story. <laughs> No, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell the story. I don't care. Well, I gotta tell, tell the story. I've got a, I've got a, a decoy. The <laughs> first time Guido came up here, I got a decoy just to, to mark where there's a rock. And he's like, he's, he's out there and he's snapping pictures. He's got a beautiful camera. He's snapping. He's like, right. I got some great pictures of this loon out there. I go, oh really? Well, take some tomorrow, and then the day after, <laughs> the day after, he's there every day, same time, same hour. <laughs> And it's not a loon, it's a duck. <laughs> now that was a long time ago, Brian. <laughs> well, that was a, that was that's got to be uh, fifteen years ago, easy. Maybe longer. 
And my eyesight Maybe was longer. better. And my eyesight was better back then. So. That's <laughs> nah, all good. Smoke Lake is a great. It's a great lake up in up in uh, northern Ontario. Well, can I? I don't know if I could call it northern Ontario, mid Ontario, maybe. Um, yeah, Park Ontario Park. Yeah, it's just it's just beautiful. Like you in the morning, if you walk out there, it it's like the sky just meets the water, and and it's got such a reflection. You don't know where one starts and the other one ends, and there's always this. You know, depending on the temperature changes, there's this just fog that dances on the lake. It's just surreal. It's just a, an amazing, amazing place, eh, Brian? It's beautiful. Yeah. So quiet. It's quiet. So, guys, we're in the middle to end of July, and we're going to talk hockey. <laughs> we're not hockey fans. <laughs> we're we're going to talk hockey. There's so much going on, um, and I think this is the first time the four of us, I think, have gotten together in a little while too, because Brian was partying with Austin Matthews. Uh, Clark was doing his coding and, and catching up to me in the fantasy hockey league. I'm down to <laughs> down to the last game. If I've been leading, you got one point I've, on me. One I've, point on me. <laughs> I've been leading for months. For months, I've been leading, and all of a sudden, Clark catches up, and we're down to one game each. If I win, I clinch the conference. If if I uh, if Clark wins and I lose, he wins. If we both tie, I still win. But he, he's brought himself to like within one point again. And I sold at the trade deadline. And I bought. It doesn't make any... I think, <laughs> I think the Simmer hates me, Clark. I think that there's something going on with the Simmer and it just doesn't like the Quebec Nordiques, that my, which is my fantasy. Well, Jenny's been griping about me winning too because it meant that I passed her. So uh, uh, you guys are you know feeling the same thing there. I, I thought she was going to catch me. I thought she was going to catch me. I did too. Yeah, I thought Jenny's got the conference. She's she's coming. She's coming up. That and then I couldn't access the. I couldn't access anything for four days because of Rogers Internet. Uh, like coast to coast Canada wide, Rogers goes for a, you know, and my and I've got my bell phone, but I'm trying to preserve my data for work purposes. So, anyways, I digress down the fantasy hockey league uh, path. But um, yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna throw a few things out there because everything's going on hockey wise. Why don't we start, Brian? I, we haven't chatted in a while, and and like I said, you've been partying with Austin Matthews. So let's start with the Leafs. Man, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I once was for my for my Leafs. They uh, their salary cap issues are catching up with them, and uh, the biggest surprise for me was what they ended up getting in goal. Um, Matt Murray is, uh, is uh, for me, it's a bit of a coin toss, whether or not he's going to pan out. That injury uh, slash hot start, slow slow uh, finish, um, that that's, uh, that scares me a bit. And then uh, who else did they get? Samsonov? Samsonov, yeah. Samsonov. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's just, that's their backup. So, I don't know. Something in the back of my mind is telling me that that Soupy's going to have a, a stellar year uh, with Edmonton, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be another missed opportunity for the Leafs. But um, aside from that, uh, it's it's their, their biggest thing now is whether or not they're going to try to trade or or uh, dump Kerfoot and and or Hall to uh, to make some room and get Rasmus Sandin signed. That seems to be the big the big challenge right now, but. 
I think it's kind of same old, same old. I think the Leafs will will make the playoffs, and uh, and then it's a coin flip how far they go from there. They didn't. I, re- I don't think they really improved at all. I would like to say, Brian, that Matt Murray did have a two point five five GAA in twenty one twenty two with the two games that he played with the Belleville Senators. So yeah, two two games. <laughs> His, uh, I know. His, his, no, listen, I'm not making fun where, of him. Where's the, Zam, where's the Zamboni driver when you he, need him? He's a Stanley Cup champion. He's got Stanley Cup pedigree. I don't want to make fun of him. He's He did have a 3.05 GAA with the Senators last season, the year before 3.38. And it's been a few seasons since he's been under three in the NHL. I I mean, Sam Sonoff, I, I don't know. Um, he's, yeah, he, yeah. he was, he, he played five games in the playoffs. So had a 2.97, a 3.02 in during the season. So who knows? He might end up being the starter. Well, to be honest with you guys, I think Razik was better than both of those goalies and they, and they traded him away. I'm kind of shocked, just like Brian. It's like, I, you know, yeah, Mrazik's hurt all the time too, but I, you know, I, I'm surprised that they, they didn't do more in the goalie department. They could have gone, I, maybe he waited too long. Maybe Dubas waited too long. Uh, or he, again, he didn't have money to sign, you know, the ones he wanted. But. I think I, that's, that's what I think, Rolly. I think the salary cap is, uh, issues and, and uh, them uh, at least pretty much being drained by their top four. Yeah. Once they pay their top four, they're, they're slim pickings left for the rest. And they're, no, they're yeah. lucky. They still got, they still got bunting at, at, I think, less than a million. They got Giordano at, at, he signed one of those uh, one of those freebie contracts. I think he's in at eight or whatever. And so they're they're just lucky to get some players in at at, at you know some of the bare minimums to to put a roster together. Yeah, I guess it's his unwillingness to to move Nylander at all, right? He doesn't want to do it. So uh, I don't know. And also, he's he's got a fascination with uh, the Sioux Greyhounds too. He just keeps picking up the players that played for the Hounds. And uh, I don't know, hasn't been working for him, but I don't know. Well, they did. He's like a boss that brings all his people with him. That's right. They (laughs) they did make their defense better. They they recently signed Jordy Ben and um and (laughs) you guys love him. I'm trying to be serious here. (laughs) And Victor (laughs) Mete. I think the Leafs, they'll, they've still got the scoring power. They still got their top lines in that, but I think they're going to have, they're going to have nights where, where they blow out just because their, their, their front line's on fire. And then they're going to get nights where they just get blown out because of their goalie situation. So you just described the Quebec um, Nordiques of the Detroit Fantasy Hockey League. That's my team. I, I'm leading in goals four. Like I'm decimating the league in goals four, but my defense is just a little suspect. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. They're kind of they're kind of setting themselves up to be like Edmonton was last year, right? All kinds of firepower, uh, put the puck in the net, but not a lot behind the D. So anyway, that's that's my take on the Leafs. I'm uh, I'm not sure uh, if uh, Mr. Dubas is finished yet. He's got a couple loose ends to tie up, and we'll see uh, see how he makes out. I I don't know that he's got much left to do. I, I don't know what else he can do. Got to get Sandy. He's got to get Rasmus Sandin signed. I think that's that'd be a mistake if they let him go. Mm-hmm. Clark, the Detroit Red Wings. I I just have one question. Yeah. 
because you're you're there you're in hockey town can we still call it hockey town and they still you know they they still use it as advertising even though it's not at center ice anymore oh yeah yeah i had some little caesar's pizza the other night which i'm sorry a long time yeah i was like (laughs) i was thinking of the illiches and i was like i think i'm supporting the detroit red wings somehow here i don't know um Little Caesars is not good, but I still love it. (laughs) (laughs) My thing with the Red Wings is I'm so confused by the moves they've made. Like, are they going for it? Are they just trying to get by? So, Uh, I so here's I mean, like I think they made good moves. They made they they made a lot of good moves. They are a better team than they were, and they're still in the Atlantic Division, and there are still four teams better than them. And so congrats, you've, you moved up to fifth place in the division. Um, that, I, that, that's kind of the problem of, of where they're at. Um, I think one of the things that Steve Eiserman said was that, and I, I don't think he used these exact words, but he, said, he, he basically said they're done losing nine to two. Um, that we're not not, not going to have those, those games anymore. They are going to be harder to play against, uh, and that's something and th- that uh, you get. Uh, it, it, you go out and get uh, David Perron, who's one of those guys who uh, uh, everybody always says, uh, like, "Oh, you hate, hate him when he's on, uh, uh, like, hate him when he's on the other team, but love him when he's on your team." Um, I haven't gotten past the hating him yet. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I feel a little bit gross about that signing. Um, but, uh, talk to me in December and maybe I'll be over it. Um, so, so, uh, they go out and get a guy like him. They go out and get a two-way guy like Andrew Cobb, uh, and Cobb's deal. I mean, I, I, I'll say, I'll come back. I, I like Perron's deal two years. Yeah, sure. I mean, like see, I mean, worst case scenario, he's a great deadline move a, a couple of seasons from now. Some, yes. some contender will tr- trade a ton for him then. Um, uh, but a uh, cop probably would have liked to see that to be a, fo- a four-year deal. Uh, but, and there you can, by the end of that deal, maybe you've got him shifted to wing. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe you've got Marco Casper ready to take over as the number two center there. They really needed a real number two center and they get that with him. So if it's a little bit of an overpay, it's not a huge deal. Um, Ali Mata, I love that deal. I love bringing him on a one-year deal that really helps the defense. Getting Dominic Kublik, uh, who Chicago just threw away, uh, is, a, is another great pickup. Uh, you fixed Theoretically, obviously, we haven't seen anything uh, play out, but on paper, you fix a lot of the scoring issues that this team had. Uh, and then as part of the be harder to play against, uh, you've got Ben Chirot, Um, which I bet you guys have thoughts uh, there. I, I hate that contract. <laughs> I, I hate that contract. Um, but I, at the same time, if I'm putting a smiley face on it, I can see how it works because the wings aren't going to be up against the cap in the next couple of years. So who cares if you're overpaying him then? And three, four years from now, theoretically, the cap is going up by then. And it's not as big of a deal that you've put so much money into this guy. Uh, so if it starts to look bad at th- years three and four, 
theoretically, it's not that big of a deal. And I've sort of heard some people say, um, a lot like I just said with Peron, like he's one of those guys that GMs will always buy on because I mean, like they they want the tough to play against guy. And so there's always the possibility of flipping him when the deal look, starts to look uglier. The, the, um, thing, the thing, Clark, with Ben Sherratt is that I don't know that you're getting Ben Sherratt who played for the Montreal Canadiens in the playoffs two seasons ago because mm-hmm. the refs <laughs> are Uh-oh. allowing that. I know it, it took, I don't know how many minutes to get to the refs, but the refs aren't allowing Ben Sherratt to play the way Ben Sherratt played effectively. And, and we saw yep. what Ben Sherratt is like in Florida when he can't play the way he was allowed to play before he becomes kind of ineffective. So you've got a, a guy who can't quite play his style of game. He wasn't always the best skater to begin with. And now you got him at $19 million for four years at the age of 31. Of all the things Detroit did, that's still my, my head scratcher on that one. I, I'm like, and and I, I can't argue with that. But um, you want, you, Iserman talked about wanting, wanting your young core to learn from some of these people. You can't have them losing forever. And they'll they will be better next year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know who might not be better next year is the Montreal Canadiens. They um, their big signing a couple of days ago, Sam Montembeau, signed a two year extension. Um, I don't know what the total. Of, I don't. I don't have the total for his signing, but they they were able to sign Rem Pitlick uh, as well. But I I think for the Canadians, Roly the the. the their story isn't as much the signing as it is the trades, right? And and the draft, what they were doing the draft, right? Uh, we were all, well, we, both of us were waiting to see, okay, who are they in the draft? And they kind of went, you know, down to the second or third pick that people were saying, uh, you know, what's his last name? Slavovsky? Slavovsky. I like, I like the pick. I, I liked it too. Yeah, after he said it, and you know, I looked more into the player. I thought, okay, okay, uh, but I think Seattle, Seattle got a good player in the number four pick. You know, with right dropping all that way. Yeah, we and you're, and you're right. Like Montreal, it was more more of the trades. You know, getting rid of Romanov, which I was surprised they got rid of because uh, he played hard last year for them. But uh, I guess they, you know, they wanted another center. And, and with Chicago basically blowing up the team, they were able to, to pick up Kirby Doc. That. That's another conversation. Chicago, <laughs> I don't understand. I don't get Chicago at all. Let's, let's put it on the shelf. Let's put it on the shelf. I was kind of surprised that, you know, if Montreal had a shot at Doc, why didn't they have a shot at Debrecon, who was, I, I thought, the better player? You know, and that they didn't give up. Uh, Ottawa gave up picks, not even a player. It's like, how did they pull that off? So that surprised me too. Uh, you know, and then Montreal, they got just got rid of Petrie, uh, sent him to Pittsburgh. I think they got back a decent defenseman, a stay at home. Well, and now he actually scores too a little bit. Matheson, I don't really know much about him, but he was really good when he started off with Florida and then kind of declined. Um, uh, he, you was know, a, he was a former first round. He was a former. Oh. Matheson was a former first round pick, but so yeah. was Neil Yakupov. So um, 
And and so was Alexi Ashen, and and I can keep you know, going. It scares me about Montreal because this was the first time they had a first pick since they picked Doug Wickenheiser back in the eighties, and they blew that one. Right? They didn't pick Savard that went to Chicago again. You know, they had a chance to pick him, and they didn't. They let him go. They went with a big center again. Right? It didn't work out for did them. Did you guys? So- did you guys see the the video clip of Shane Wright? Uh, given the uh, the alleged death stare to the Montreal Canadian team, yeah, I don't he swears he didn't do it. Giving him the hairy eyeball. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I I wasn't there. I don't think so. I, he said he wasn't doing that. I don't believe he did. You know how they catch people. I got you. Got to figure he was major disappointed, man. He was being built up as either one or two, right? You're yeah. either going likely going first, and if not, you'll go second, and then to, to not get the Reminded me of the old uh, draft day uh, football thing with Kevin Costner, where the guy just sat there and waited round after or uh, but, pick after pick after pick. But hey, Brian, three people, three other teams passed on Shane Wright, like, or sorry, I, two other teams. Other teams. So, so what did they see that we don't know about, or that the media didn't report? Like, what is it, right? All right, so that was the abbreviated portion of the it's not the ref.com podcast that we were sharing with you now here is the exclusive we've gone off the air and we're having our off the air conversation to wind things down lucky them that's what that's what we've come to in the nhl forget loyalty and lucky them that's it for it's not the ref on this session folks we took it to an hour because we hadn't talked to you in a long time see you in the next one you got clark you got Rolly, you got brian you got guido take care folks Ridiculous! (laughs) (laughs) Ridiculous! <laughs> Dynasty! <laughs> hey, Dynasty's on. Dynasty's coming back on TV on Hulu. Falcon Crest, the great it's American starring, hero. Starring, uh, starting, starring, uh, they got a new star on it, Nikita Kucher. <laughs> <laughs> what a but it's X rated. Apparently, it's X rated because he, uh, wow. there's some, some nudity in it. Where are all the, you know, where are all the t-shirts this year, Kucherov? And that's... He didn't win. Why would he make a shirt? Exactly. He shouldn't have had a shirt in the first place. <laughs> he man, you get, you get wound, man. That's awesome. I can't stand... You know what? Even if if someone would offer me Kucherov in a trade in any fool, I won't take him. I just won't. He is just... He's not, he's just not what a, a, a hockey player should be. And he, he was, he came, he ran out of gas at the end, but man, he yeah. came close in the finals there. Did you see him in the final 30 seconds? We, we didn't talk about this. Did you see him throw his gloves at the trainer for not giving him the stick in time? Like having a fit. Did you see that clip, right? No, I didn't. Okay, uh, but I so, don't doubt it. I saw him get. I saw him getting frustrated in the there's, third. Period. There's, you know, twenty seconds left. He breaks his. He had broken it or lost his stick or something happened with his stick. He comes back to the bench, and the trainer isn't get doesn't have the stick ready for him. So you see him kind of jumping up and down. He takes off his hockey gloves and he whips them at the hockey trainer. His own hockey <laughs> trainer. He's throwing gloves at him. <laughs> I mean, it's, that, that's crybaby, but at the same time, how the hell is nobody paying enough attention to get that guy a stick? He threw gloves at the trainer. Okay, yeah, I'm not saying that that's a, that that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's a, that's dysfunction all around because 
how do you have your best player out there trying to get a stick? And like, oh yeah, we can't get you a stick. We don't know. <laughs> Pay attention, people. That'd be like that'd I, be like the driver. Sure. That'd be like the guy from per- Guido. I'm gonna use your analogy. That'd be like the guy from Ferrari driving in and the guy doesn't change his tires so he throws his helmet at him <laughs> right i would still i would still be like dude why are you throwing your helmet at somebody like i be mad because we yeah. came in for a pit stop and the guy didn't change his tire the guy Wait. was asleep at the wheel he's the throwing asleep at the wheel he's throwing projectiles at the man <laughs> like like leather gloves it doesn't matter it's <laughs> this is gonna escalate this is like the, the way Guido tells this story, it's going to escalate to like after the game, he tried to stab him with his skate. You know what? He may as well. It doesn't matter what he threw at him. It, he, <laughs> he threw a grenade it was, it was a new glove. It was, rough, it was rough leather. It hadn't even been broken in yet. It's going to cut him. <laughs> so, so you guys are saying it's okay to throw things at your hockey train. Absolutely. If they don't do what they're Come supposed to do. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> hey, people throw stuff at the ref when he doesn't do what they think he should do. So there you go. Those are idiot fans, though. Those the are, ref probably oh, no. deserves it, is what you're thinking, too, Guido, right? Some nights, hey, but I still wouldn't throw things at him. I'm surprised another player just didn't hand him a stick like they normally yeah. Like, here, yeah. my stick. Oh. Or yeah, like somebody on the bench didn't just say yeah. no. They all watched him throw things at the trainer. They all supported the 18 million over the cap jerk. All right, well, as you heard, things got a little bit more heated as we had gone off the air. And sometimes that happens. And hey, if uh if I get some feedback that you guys like that, uh, maybe I'll include some future exclusive content after we go off the air. But This brings our August show to near conclusion. Before I go, though, you know I'm going to leave you with some music. And the the song I'm going to leave you with is a collaboration song between a couple of artists who've been on the show before. You got Chris Hale from the White House, and you got Jennifer Alvarado. And together, they worked on a song that has burned up the indie charts. The song is called Stars Collide. Here is Chris Hale, Jennifer Alvarado, taking us into August and through to September. Enjoy, folks.
Chris Hale, Jennifer Alvarado, Stars Collide on the monthly social. You can hear them on thepathradio.com. Thanks for joining us, folks. Have a safe and happy August. Talk to you in September. Watching the stars collide And only God knows why I was born in a city I moved to the country Feeling a fresh new vibe